There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Being prepared is all about having the right tools. The OnX off-road map and navigation app is the best fully functional GPS when you're out of service. Offline maps allow you to access all interactive land and trail data and custom map markups when you're out of service. Your phone's internal GPS gives you full navigation capabilities offline, so you'll always know where you are and how to get home safely. Go to onxmaps.com and use code MEATEATER to get 20% off your membership today. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Okay, Officer Bill Andre, Colorado Game Warden slash... District Wildlife Manager. Slash District Wildlife Manager for how many years? 38. Hey, Brody, has he ever written you a citation for anything? Not yet. <laughs> have you been? Have you been naturally uh, just checked? I know where to ab- what areas to avoid. You know what where areas? No, but I've actually heard you better watch out because he can pop up anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you heard in your area. Oh yeah, yeah. He's known as, known to find people that are doing things they shouldn't be doing. So you've been in, you've been in the business in the wildlife game warden business for thirty eight thirty eight years. How many more years you got in you? Not many. You're like in the evening of your... I'm in the twilight of my career. What, uh, what year did you move out to Colorado? 1976. To go to school? To go to school. And then studied? I had a degree in fisheries and zoology from Colorado oh, is that State. Right? Okay. Yep. And then like went right to work as a... Uh, no, I... Uh, I took the test for the district wildlife manager job, didn't make it the first year, so I went to Utah to uh, be an assistant manager at a uh, private fish hatchery. Okay. And then uh, uh, the next year I took the test again and got in. What was stumping you? I don't even know what the test is, but what was stumping you on the test? I don't know uh, what really stumped me. It's a, there was, when I was taking it for, there was 10 positions, you had about 670, 700 people or so. Uh, apply for it and go in and take a written test okay um and then if you pass the written test you went to an oral test and then you went through a physical 
psychological testing. Um, and out of the six or 700 people, I didn't make the top 10 the first oh, year. Oh, I said, oh, so it's a narrow pool. <laughs> it wasn't, it was so then. So then you dusted off, came back the next year and got in? Got in. Yeah, congratulations. Belatedly. Belatedly, thank you. Um, so you, you're a man of the law, right? And a man of the law needs to be, um, needs to approach things, you know, objectively, right? But are you still comfortable in dealing with hypotheticals? Because there's been, a, there's a handful of questions that have been raised to us over the years where people write in and be like, hey, what if I did this? Or what if a fella did this? And it's very hard for us to get answers. But I feel that because you've probably been in all of these situations, that I could ask you a hypothetical and you could tell us what way you would lean on it. Sure. Can we try I, one? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I can give you an answer to a lot of them. Really? Okay, yeah. let, me, let me lay this one out because this one just came in. Well, no. The answer would be is if you use the word if, yeah. don't do it. <laughs> okay. What if I have one more drink and drive? <laughs> <laughs> what if I take that second shot? If if is in there, you're telling yourself, probably shouldn't do this. Okay, but can I lay some sure. on you? you bet. Because I just want to know, like, like, all right, a guy writes in and says this. Let's say you, this just, we just got this email. He's in, it's not even hunting season, so I'm assuming this isn't like a thing that he's now trying to figure out if what he did was right or wrong. But he's saying, let's say you take a shot minutes before the end of legal shooting light. So, so, blouch, right? You go over there and you got to take a second shot to finish it off. But now it's past legal shooting light. He shoots again. Would, how would you view that? Well, it's it, it going to, I mean, the circumstances are going to be, it's going to have to show me two bullet wounds. Okay. Because if he shoots twice and there's only one, uh, why am I going to believe that the second shot was, a, was I just had to finish it off? Gotcha. Um, so you, you do a little d- detective work. Sure. You got to do a little detective work on it. Have you been in this situation before? Not on that exact one. No. no. I mean, we've had it on private land. The animal jumped the fence after I shot it. It was laying on the other side of the fence. I finished it off. Okay. May not have crossed the fence, but I shot across the fence to finish it off. If there isn't two bullet holes in it, he has a problem. Gotcha. If there's two bullet holes, and at least it's plausible it could have happened. And then it just depends on on how upfront you feel they are. Um, are they sincere in what they're saying and, and what the circumstances show you when you're out there? So, I mean, a lot of it's, give and take. Um, you know, if the person's extremely nervous or you've had dealings with them before, or they're known to be always the one that, well, it was just a minute after shooting light. Yeah. Then you're like, you're not learning your, learning your lesson. Maybe quit shooting 20 minutes before the end of shooting light instead of waiting till the last minute. Yeah. Uh, I want to get back around and ask you about if you have people in your area. Like, I want to ask you what your area is. And if you have people in your area that you find that you are routinely dealing with. But I want to hit you with two more hypotheticals. Sure. Okay. One time a guy, and I was never able to get this guy an answer on this. And he was actually asking the question about Alaska. But maybe there's something in your zone where you'd be able to answer this guy's question for him. Or provide some insight. Where he was saying that one time he's on, he, he's in a piece of public ground, 
that uh, allows rifle hunting. Okay, but he's on the border with a piece of ground that's managed in such a way that the seasons are the same, but there's no rifle hunting. You cannot discharge a firearm there. You can only hunt with archery equipment. So same season structure, same bag limit structure, but just the land management agency has said no discharge of firearms on this chunk of land. But he was sitting in the firearm discharge thing, looking across the the border, looking across this boundary at a black bear and didn't shoot. And later, all of his hunting buddies were like, well, you definitely could have because you weren't discharging your firearm in the no firearm discharge area. How would you look at a situation like that? If the bullet hit the animal in the no discharge area, you killed it with a firearm. I mean, it's not... Okay. I mean... I like it. The reason... You can't you can't discharge a firearm because you can't kill something with a firearm there. So if the bullet hits it and kills it, you killed it with a firearm. Doesn't matter where you're standing. Doesn't matter where you're standing exactly. Yeah, I like. I mean, I like the thinking. It's good thinking. I don't know that I agree with it, but I like the thinking. Well, if you're standing on, I mean, I don't know if I agree with it in like um, just in terms of having like a debate. I feel like you could run circles around the idea. No, not in your mind. No. No. <laughs> if, the, if the animal died from a bullet, the only way for a bullet to kill it is you discharged a firearm. Yeah, and sent that thing. Ac- sent yeah. that thing across that line. Good. All right. Last one. Last hype. And this might not even be a hypothetical. Are you allowed to corner hop in Colorado? I believe the answer is no. Okay. I'm not 100% sure on that, but I believe it's no. That's how I've always operated in Colorado. Have you ever had to um, write a citation to someone who argued no. this idea? No. I, I, I don't totally understand the reason why it's not legal. I mean, there was a big write-up in one of the magazines yeah. this winter on it, and, and I can't remember. I think he was in Wyoming yep. that they were doing it. But We I, talk about it incessantly. And no, it's like a, it's like a legal black hole. Yeah, I, I don't understand how if you don't touch that private land, why it's not legal for you to corner hop. But not an expert on it, haven't had any dealings with it. You just enforce the law, you don't make them. Right. right. <laughs> right. Can I hit you with one more? Sure. Okay. Someone is on public land, and they're shooting at an animal. This is one we talk about incessantly for whatever reason. Uh, someone's on public land. And they're shooting at an animal that's on public land, but their bullet crosses private land. Would you ding them for uh, having trespassed, for having their bullet trespass across someone's land? Um, personally, I probably would not. But oh. I did see, um, I think it was an attorney's general opinion, but it might have just been from a district attorney, one of the local district attorneys that. If you're shooting over their land, you're trespassing. Okay. Um, but it, it would take a lot for me to to write a, an actual citation. I might write them a warning. Okay. So it also depends on did he cross a, a corner he wasn't aware of, or was he aware that his neighbor's got an eight foot fence and he was sitting in a tree and purposely shot over the eight foot fence across the guy's property to get something on the other side. So there's always circumstances you have to look at yep. that 
that it's like you knew better. You knew there was a reason you weren't supposed to do it, and you went to all this effort to do it. Yeah. So you already knew the answer before you pulled the trigger. <laughs> no, I, I got you. I got you. That's the thing, like, from talking in the past and, and talking to you now, it's the thing that um, that's come out when I've asked you these questions is how much you're sort of, when you're dealing with someone, how much you uh, seem to sort of pay attention to and factor in like like sort of the entire package of what's going on what, like I, an individual's intent sort of how are they how upfront are they being to what point did they self report to what point do you got to like work at them to try to find out the full story if i have to work at it to get the full story or you lie to me you don't have much success mm-hmm. i'm probably going to write you the ticket if you're upfront and truthful then i'll treat you the same way yeah i mean to me it's it, Treat them like you want to be treated. We're all going to make mistakes in our life. Some, some will be an honest mistake. Some will be like, well, what if? <laughs> and, and other ones will be, I know I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to do it anyways. And, and I think it's important to try to get to those little details of just how did this happen and why did it happen. Yeah. All right. Now, well, I don't know if this, this might not be back enough. This might be moving forward. But now, can, can you, now we've got those taken care of, can you sort of explain to me like the breadth of your work? Like, like what is sort of your professional mandate in terms of what you're responsible for and where you're responsible for it? Well, we, we all have our own districts. Um, but our, like uh, today, as we talked about, I'm the on-call officer for the Area 8, which goes from Aspen to Vail. So if there's any wildlife calls, um, I get the call first. Does that overlap with the hunting units? Yes. Okay. So yep. it's the it's the, the eight hundred units or no? It's um, like we have. Well, they don't. Unfortunately, the units don't really follow a, a normal numbering system. Okay. So we have everything from the lowest unit, I believe, is thirty five, and we go up to four seventy one. Okay. So it, it the the way they were designed doesn't really fit in with when you look at a numbering system. I see, I see. They're scattered all around, right? Yeah. But I mean, my main responsibilities within my district, which is the Upper Eagle Valley, um, but on when you're on call, then you're responsible from here all the way to Aspen. Okay. So and in hunting season, if a call comes in and nobody else is there, you're expected to be able to go handle it, whether you're the on call officer or not. So with only eight guys working in the field over that big an area. There's lots of times you have to go outside your normal area and work on it. But we also have the ability to go anywhere in the state. I mean, we're a class one peace officer for the state of Colorado, so we can enforce any of the laws in Colorado, but we stay pretty much to the game and fish laws. So you could pull over someone for speeding? Oh, yeah, without a doubt. Do you do that much? No. It's not, not my expertise. I mean, uh-huh. I don't have a radar gun. Our direction is pretty much that if somebody's driving in such a way that they're a clear hazard and could cause severe bodily injury, then pull them over and, and get a state patrol or a sheriff's deputy or a town police to come out and handle it. Okay. So well, I, I want to talk more about law enforcement, but what are your other – so besides law enforcement, law enforcement, you have many other responsibilities. Right. Law enforcement uh, used to be about a third of the time. Um, now it depends how you classify law enforcement. When you look at the bear calls and the lion calls we deal with, to a certain degree, those are law enforcement in that you may have to discharge a weapon uh, to put the animal down, maybe right in the middle of town. 
So it's definitely a, a law enforcement situation in that part. But we always go through the discussion, um, is it law enforcement you're responding to for human safety or is it a biological concern you're responding to that the bear or the moose is in a place it shouldn't be and it's a danger to people? How much time do you spend dealing with that now relative to in the past with, with wildlife conflict, like, like particularly with bears and mountain lions? Uh, in the summer, over 50% of the times, bears. But on, on the bad years, I mean, on a good year, it might only be 10%. 10% of what? 10% of your whole time in the summer. Oh, Homet, you, you spend 50% of your time in the summer dealing with bears. Yes. Last year. Doing what? Well, last year, just in this area, from Vail to Aspen, we handled over 1,100 calls. And some of those are simply calling somebody back and saying, well, yeah, put your trash up, put your bird feeder up. Other ones you might spend two or three days on. You drag a trap over to Aspen or to Vail. You set the trap, you have to go back the next day and rebate the trap. Then if you catch the bear, the decision is made whether the bear is put down or moved. And then to move it, you have to go about 100 airline miles. So once you catch a bear, if you have to move it, that's an all-day deal for at least one officer, sometimes two. Now, do you expect to do a lot more of that this summer since it's a drought year? Well, it certainly could be. I mean, the nice thing about so far this year is, knock on wood, we we got through all the uh, blossoms without a freeze. Okay. Or a frost. Now we could still get one as the fruit's setting, and lose them all, or it could get so dry that the fruit just doesn't really produce, and the acorns don't produce. So acorns and service berries and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, choke cherries. Those those are the key. So you're talking you're talking wild fruit, wild fruit. Yeah, we, I mean the fruit in town and people's crab apple trees because they're watering it in a drought year. That's where the fruit's going to be, and and the bears are going to go in there to get it. So you so you mean you could have a like a wild choke cherry failure, a wild blueberry failure, a wild acorn failure, and you can then anticipate we're gonna have trouble with bears. Yes. Yeah. Direct correlation. So this year might not be that bad. Might not be that bad. I mean we've had uh, we haven't had anywhere near as many problems this year as we've had in years past in in our area. Um in the southwest, which is in a much greater drought, is having some more problems than we're having right now when was the last time someone in colorado was killed by a black bear i haven't heard about that in a long time the, well the last one was about uh, three years ago uh the lady down uh, by telluride uh-huh. that was feeding bears through a chain link fence on her porch the bears killed her what do you mean through a chain link fence she had put a chain link fence around the deck of her porch so that she could hand feed the bears and the bears couldn't get to her Unfortunately, the bears could get to her. How? I don't know how. I wasn't there, but uh-huh. the bears did uh, kill her. Gotcha. Uh, when you said you got to move a bear 100 miles, what do you mean? In order to try to transplant the bear, you try to get them out of their home range. Oh, so that doesn't mean it just happens to be 100 miles to a good place to put it, but there's a thinking that move a bear 100 miles. 100 miles. And, you'll, and he's likely to not show back up where you left him. Right. I mean, but you also... Like, we don't take many bears in our area, um, even though we might, we're might we 100 miles from Denver. Um, part of the reason is we have enough bear problems going on, but you have to look at uh, other domestic sheep there. Is there a campground there? If this is a bear that's been getting food from people, you don't want to dump in the middle of a campground. So we kind of try to pick the places that he's not going to immediately cause another problem. Okay, Doesn't mean he won't pick up and move 20 miles and cause a problem the next day, but we try not to put him in a spot that's going to 
cause him a real problem. What factors play in when you look and, and, and you're trying to decide whether an animal needs to be euthanized or relocated? It's generally uh, based on the animal's um, disposition. Uh, were they aggressive to people? Um, certainly if they break into a house, if a window's open a crack and they rip that window open and come in the house, uh, we euthanize them. Because the thinking then is that that he has a proclivity to go into houses and right. that could be hazardous for the next person. Right. Well, the next person, or if you move them, somebody in a tent has a piece of nylon between them and the bear versus a, a wall and a window. And just so people understand, like it's, it's well known that once a bear does that once, they're going to keep doing it. Right. They, they learned, they learned it. They, especially if they get rewarded. Yeah. It, it's, you know, you could make an argument that, well, yeah, he, he pulled the window open, but he never got in the house and got any food. Somebody scared him off before, but once they get in the house and start eating out of the refrigerator or the cupboards, then it's like that, that bear knows how to get food and he's probably going to do it again. Have you ever seen video of a bear working the outside of a house? I've seen it in person. Oh, people think like, I think some people visualize it that the bear comes up and understands doors and windows initially, but they just work the whole thing, pulling, prying, biting, anything they can get their claw under, right? And they just like explore that whole exterior and eventually they find something that kind of gives, you know? There are some bears that clearly know a door and a window. Oh, from from having been through that process. Right. Yeah. I mean, you'll watch them. They'll walk right up to a deck, right up to the sliding glass door. Um, no I mean, there's, kidding, really. There's pictures on security cameras of bears opening a car door fast as you and I can. They walk up, they lift the latch, and they're in the car that quick. They, they figured it out. They know exactly how to open that door. They know where to go. What they don't know how to do is open the door from the inside when the door closes on them. That's when you have the problem. Oh, then they're in the house. Have you dealt with that? Oh, yeah. Or in the car. You got a bear in a home. In a home. What do you even do then? Well, the first thing you do is you try to convince the people there, if they can safely do it, is to open every door on the house. Give the bear options to get out. So so you've had calls from people who are in a house with a bear in the house. With a bear in the house. And they're calling from within the house. Yes. Yep. What are they saying? Uh, after they stop screaming. <laughs> yeah. Um, they're, they're just, you know, bears in the house. Uh, I'm in the bedroom. I need to get out. Help me. And lots of times, just because of where we're located, we call the local PD or the SO and say, hey. What's that know, mean? The sheriff's department. Okay. The local police department or the yeah. sheriff's department. Gotcha. Just because they generally can be there quicker. And, and the big thing is open the doors to the house. Give that bear a way out. Um, if the people can go out a window safely or there's another exit, then help them get out that window and we'll be there as quick as we can with it. And then if you've, when, when you've arrived at a house where there's a bear in a house. Yes. Do you, do you just like go in there, guns blazing, or do you go in there trying to like figure out ways to get doors open and let the thing? Uh, first thing you do is try to get the doors open. Uh, you don't want to have to destroy the bear inside somebody's home. And yeah. then you'll just find him, like if he takes off, you'll just go find that bear. Right, right. I mean, we generally carry a trank gun with us. Yeah. Um, a lot of the officers now are carrying tasers. Um, a taser oh. works on a bear or a moose just like it does a human. Oh, and you guys have tased <laughs> bears and moose? Oh, yeah. Yeah. What's it do to it? Same thing it does to a person. I guess I don't know what it does to a person. Oh, you ought to volunteer to be tased then. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't like incapacitate him. No, it does. It? Yeah. 
as long as long as you keep pulling the trigger and put the juice to them, they're on the ground. They can't move. Really? Have you hit a bear with a taser? I have not. I'm not trained in a taser. So, but uh, uh, tasing a moose. Tasing him. Well, like uh, you see, you hear about moose is stuck in swing sets. No. Oh, you haven't. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen my kids get stuck in swing yeah. sets. No, there's there's quite a few videos of moose in swing sets, and it used to be you either tried to get the moose like out. Like he's walking through a yard and hooks his antler in a swing set. Or, or he decides to fight with it. No, I didn't know this was a thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just, well, just like anything else, you know, moose or a bull elk gets upset. Yep. They walk into the swing, the swing come back and hits them. They throw their head at it because something just hit them. Okay. And, and they end up with the rope or the chain wrapped around their antlers. Okay. So the, the old way was you either try to cut it loose without doing anything to it, without getting stomped, or you dart it, and then once it's uh, under sedation, you, you remove it. The new way is that you go in with tasers, and you tase the thing, and as long as you don't touch the wires going from the taser gun to the implants, you can handle the moose or cut the chain or the rope loose from them. And then once you stop tasing it, the thing jumps up and runs away. And it's safer for the animal than tranquilizing it? It's safer because you don't have to, well, first off, you don't have to wait. In other words, you walk up and dart it. It's going to take four or five minutes for that to take effect so the animal can hurt itself. And then you have to, depending on the tranquilizer you use, you either have a reversal or you have to wait a couple hours for the animal to wake up. So, it, you know, it's much easier to deal with it. trying to move a moose out of somebody's yard or sit there with it for four or five hours and then realize when you turn it loose, it may run out in the street and get hit. Yep. It, it's a whole lot easier if you don't. They, I mean, it's not like they wake up and they have 100% of their senses about them. Okay. Um, I mean, they wake up. I mean, in coming the, out of being sedated. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they wake up from the reversal fairly quickly, and, and they can move, but it doesn't always mean they're 100% there. I mean, you'll see them jump up and run a little ways, and then they kind of stop and shake their head. So you don't know if they're really 100% um, mobile and but, 100% aware of what's going on. But when he comes out of being tased, he's just back to himself. He's back to himself. Yeah. Yep. And pissed or not pissed? Uh, from what I've seen in the videos, it depends on the animal. Um, but there's been a lot of times with moose and bear that, uh, I mean, the bear, the, they're generally not tasing the bear to immobilize it to do anything. They're trying to tase the bear to give it a negative experience. Oh, I see. Yeah. That, hey, you show up here, just like hitting it with rubber buckshot. Every time you come up on a deck, somebody does something nasty to you, pretty soon you're going to start saying, I don't like to go to those places. It hurts. Yep. So it's, it's not so much with the bears that we're doing it to immobilize them, to work on them. We're doing it more to try to give them that negative experience. What's the typical mountain lion problem? Like, what's the typical sort of pattern of, of a mountain lion, you know, kind of crossing that, that sort of division into, into human territory, right? It, it, it's pretty same as the bears. Um, although I haven't been to any mountain lions in a home. I've been to mountain lions asleep on people's front doors. Uh, at their sliding glass doors. For what reason? They just decided to curl up there and go to sleep. I, I mean, I don't know the reason. Homes with pets or not even necessarily? And not even necessarily with pets. No livestock generally or maybe horses. Um, probably some solar radiation in play there. It's probably a nice place to take a it's nap. It's like laying up on a rock in the <laughs> yeah. sun. Yeah. It is a pretty – lots of times they are. They're on kind of the, the lee side. They're out of the wind and the snow, and they are right up against the base of the house. Um, I mean, we had one in Eagle that uh, crawled underneath a house trailer, and we crawled underneath the house trailer with it to try to get it out. And 
went in the first time just to see where it was, didn't have a dart gun, and and could not get the thing to move from the corner it was in. Went in the second time with two of us and a dart gun, and once we got close, it ran around us and ran out. And then we had to chase it down after that. To do what? We put it down. Yeah. Um, it had been in town three or four times. Oh, I see. Up by the school. And when we got close enough to see, I mean, we were eight feet away from this thing under the house trailer. Uh, it was emaciated. I mean, instead of weighing 60 or 70 pounds, it was weighing about 25 pounds. Wow. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, we're seeing quite a bit of that with, with yearlings, that they just don't seem to learn how to hunt. Or what do you attribute that to? I don't know if it's just they uh, got kicked out too early by the mom, um, and they just don't know how to hunt, or or if they're injured somewhere inside. I mean, sometimes when we do the necropsies, we don't run everything on them to be able to determine what their cause is for being in such bad shape. It's usually just assumed... Just like people, you got good hunters, you got bad hunters. But you're saying you feel like you see more of it now. Well, the, um, the best quote was from uh, the neighboring officer here in Eagle. He's been on 35 years. I've been on 38. And in January of 2015, we dealt with more lion calls in one month than we dealt with the 30-plus years we'd each had before. I mean, you never used to get a call about a lion in town. But, like, there has been, I mean... There has to be many things contributing to this, but do you have some like theories about it? Oh yeah, like lay them out. Oh, oh, you want to know what my theories are? Yeah, and, 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 and I'm like, I understand that you're you're just you know, no one right. If someone knew the absolute answer, well, it'd be, it'd be impossible to know the absolute answer. But there has to be some like some good ideas about what is going on. Right. Well, definitely the mountain lion population's increased, and so has the human population. So, I mean, you, add, you have more of either one, you have a bigger chance for interaction. Okay. But if you look across uh, almost all the Western states, all of them are showing this, an increase in, in conflicts between bears and lions and people. Um, I mean, we did uh, last year, 2017, again, from Vail to Aspen, I think we responded to right at 100 mountain lion calls. Um, before 2014, we didn't even bother to keep track because there was so few. Um, we, uh, we've increased our harvest quota on lions in most of the places, and we're usually filling those. And, and even after filling them in 2016, after filling the quota, um, we had a couple areas in the Upper Eagle Valley where we were seeing, people were seeing three and four lions at a time working together, uh, coming right up to their homes, walking around the homes, coming up on the decks, um, probably looking for pets, pet food. Um, deer elk that were in their net yards. Do you feel that increasing the quota does it allow like does it allow you guys to even target the lions that are coming into town, or is it two almost separate populations? I don't I don't know that it's two separate populations, but one of the problems we have is sometimes where they're coming into town, it's a really bad place to try to run them with hounds. Right. Mainly because the hounds get hit on the roads. And stuff. Well, the hounds get hit on the roads, or the lion decides to run back into the neighborhood, and now you got four hounds underneath somebody's crab apple tree barking at a lion in their tree, and they want to know what this guy with the gun's doing on their property. Yeah, understandably. So, so tough to tough in some of these places to hunt it. Tough right along I seventy. A lot of the problems we have are right on the edges of I seventy, because that's where the subdivisions are here. The other thing that that appears to be happening is. The lions, just like the bears, have learned that a subdivision in a golf course is a pretty good place to live. Um, you know, for the bears, you got all the fruit trees that people plant. 
for the lions, you got pets, you got pet foods, you got lots of rabbits, um, you got deer and elk spending an entire year living within these subdivisions. And we're talking big subdivisions, not a not a twenty acre subdivision, but something like Cordillera that's maybe a thousand acres. Homestead that's 800-some acres. I mean, there's enough room for these animals to find a place to live and stay out of sight most of the time. And then the the other reason I think we get more calls is everybody has security cameras or game cameras. Everybody's got a game camera in their backyard, and the lion may have always used to walk through it, but now they got a picture of it. Oh, I see. And and you, I mean, you see it on TV all the time that, you know, in Denver, they just had a picture a month or so ago of a female and three kittens jumping over a guy's split rail fence, walking through their yard, sniffing around the bushes, and then going into the neighbors. And that may have been going on for years, but nobody had that video camera out there. To and they, get, they get alarmed when they see it. Some do. Some, yeah. some are just like, well, that's really cool. They get alarmed when their cat or their dog disappears, and they get pretty upset. You know, I want to share with you a couple of perspectives that uh, coming from folks in Washington – where I currently live and, and actually not far from where I live, they just had the first mountain lion, uh, human fatality from a mountain lion in 94 years. Yeah. Okay. So it was a couple mountain bikers were out riding, not far from town and, uh, looked back and there's a lion chasing them. They jumped off their bikes, used their bikes to sort of scare off the lion rode down the trail a little bit away to get away from the area, stopped. We're kind of like, oh, my God, I can't believe that just happened. And then the lion jumped from above, attacked one of the bikers. That biker got the lion off, got on his bike and fled. And then the lion killed the other biker and drugged the biker up and cashed it under some brush. They had a houndsman come out. The houndsman started the track at the lion, or at the at the kill, and tracked it down and killed the lion. Um, one thing that came out of that that was interesting was the way that everyone who has sort of an agenda around mountain lions use that example to further their perspective, ranging from some people saying there must have been something wrong with the lion. Because there's no other way to account for how this would happen. Other people saying, no, there was nothing wrong with the lion. It's just a thing that can happen. Uh, a friend of mine who, I have a, a couple of friends who are houndsmen who do a lot of work for the States. And one of these guys had an interesting perspective on it where he's just talking about his own career. So he'd spent decades doing uh, like wildlife conflict work around mountain lions as a houndsman. And he was saying when he was young, there was zero tolerance for any kind of mix-up. Like any lion that went anywhere near people or attempted to kill a sheep or did anything, like the lion was just dead. He would get a call. He would be told, kill the lion. Now he'll get calls where they're like, don't want to kill the lion. Can you run it and scare it away maybe a couple of times? Or it's going to be a lot of pressure on us just due to the, the, the neighborhood. It's going to be a lot of pressure on us if we have to euthanize the lion. So he feels that as acceptance for these soft encounters has increased, you're, like it or not, you're going to invite additional hard encounters. 
the thing about his perspective is this is the first time it's happened in 94 years. So if another hundred years goes by and, there's a, not, and no one else gets killed by a mountain lion, you'll be like, that adds a lot of validity to the fact that it was like a fluke, right? If all of a sudden now it like becomes a thing, you know, every now and then a person gets killed, I think it might lend, it might give some credence to what his perspective is. It's just like, if we're going to be more tolerant of large predators in and amongst us, we're going to have to learn to be more tolerant with the fact that you're going to inevitably have these dangerous encounters get incredible deals on premium cuts from butcher box do you like free protein for a whole year well deals this good are hard to come by at the grocery store i at home well i got two freezers but you know what i'm saying i like to have a freezer stocked full of stuff i like feeling prepared man when i come home and it's time to make dinner i like to go in i got all my proteins lined up in there just makes me feel good about stuff and with butcher box you'll always be prepared with meat in the freezer. It means fewer trips to the grocery store. Delivered right to your doorstep with free shipping always. You get a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value. You'll get exclusive deals as a member, too. Sign up at ButcherBox.com slash eater and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free and every order for a year. So every box you get has that in it free for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash meat eater. Make sure you use code meat eater to choose your free for a year offer plus $20 off your first order. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots and Tacovas is your stop before attending your next concert. Tacovas has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. And Tacovas has first wear comfort, meaning you put them on, they feel great. Little or no break-in, period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Plus, their direct-to-consumer pricing keeps value on your feet and money in your pocket. Just ask my buddy Chili who's been slipping around in his Tacova boots talking about how great he feels in them. He loves them. Yeah, Steve, they're very comfortable. They're very fashionable, and I enjoy wearing mine around the office and anywhere I go around Bozeman. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and a friendly staff are at your service. Many stores have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it to a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. And find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey, everybody. I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith who, over recent months, I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, Watch that video, and in that video, you'll see 
Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company, working knives for working people, 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. Does that speak to you at all? Like, I mean, does that seem like something that makes sense based on your, I mean, different state, right? Yeah, different state. Um, I mean, I don't know enough about Washington's lion population to talk intelligently about their side of it. But, yeah. you know, I, I, I kind of subscribe to that same thing that, you know, it used to be we would tell people, you know, just clean up your trash, take your bird feeders down, the bears will go away. And, to a certain point, they do. Um, but with what we found with the number of droughts we're getting now and, and the changes in what's going on with vegetation, the lack of fire, I mean, some of the best places for them to find food is in a town, whether it's garbage or everybody plants raspberries in their backyard or serviceberry choke cherries, crab apple trees. So we're kind of inviting them to come into where we are. And at the same time, we're moving out into their habitat more and more. Yeah. So definitely going to increase the, the number of encounters. And some people are very tolerant of it. Some people, the first time they show up, they don't care if you kill that bear or what you do, but just get that bear out. Yeah. Go put them back in the woods. It doesn't matter that, hey, you live up against a wilderness area. You're surrounded on two sides by Forest Service, and one of those sides is the wilderness boundary. Where in the state do you want us to put them that it isn't <laughs> right for them to be? And, and you get the same thing with people out on a trail that, hey, I was walking on this trail in the wilderness and this bear showed up and stared at me. You got to do something. No, that's where I want the bear to be. Yeah. You need to understand that the bears are there and you need to take the appropriate actions to keep yourself safe. But, but conflicts aside, you feel that there are more, like, like numerically, right? There are more lions. You feel that there are more lions now than there were a decade ago. Oh, without a doubt. And bears, right? And I, bears, yeah. Do, do you think that there's more bears because they don't get hunted in the spring anymore? I, I don't, because we actually harvest more bears oh, with really? just our fall season now than we did with a spring and a fall season. It's just a general increase really? in population. Yeah, yeah. The, the big difference in bears, when Tom Beck was doing his study down in the Black Canyon of the Gunnison, um, when we would have a bad drought year like this or a failure of acorns or berries the the thinking was and it, i think it was true at that point was the cubs that were born that year weren't going to get enough food to make it through hibernation they would end up dying the sows that were impregnated because bears do a delayed implantation they wouldn't have enough fat they wouldn't implant those embryos so you lost this year's crop uh cub crop and you lost next year, so you lose Can two. Can you explain delayed implantation real quick? It, uh, that the, the, the sow's impregnated in the spring, but they don't implant the embryos until fall. So in the spring, the egg, so when they rut in June. Right, May and June. May yep. and June, okay. So the egg is fertilized yep. and begins to form. But it's not implanted yet. Okay. And, and they implant, and uh, Martins, there's a lot of different animals that have delayed implantation. Yeah, I, hear, I heard that... Uh, yeah, you hear like river otters and yep. I know a handful of members of the weasel family. And so right. they're thinking like 
So then she needs to be in a certain state. So the bear needs to be in a certain state of physical fitness for her to allow the implantation to occur. Correct. Okay. So so continue on now with So so you lose two years of age two classes of age class. You lose the, the cubs from two thousand seventeen and you don't get any cubs in two thousand eighteen. Okay. So that's a huge hit to your population. I mean imagine if you're going to, to grade school and you lose the third and fourth grade class. You know, for the when they get ready to hit high school, that graduating class is gonna be pretty darn small. Yeah. When it comes time for them to start reproducing there's a whole lot less of them out there to reproduce hard to build a population on that and when you think how long live bears are i mean that that's a long period that you're missing those two and if you get two that are close together which i would think you could say 2012 and 2018 are fairly close together when you're talking about an animal that might live 20 years you know there's there's four age classes you lose what we've seen different now is that these bears are coming into town they're feeding on the trash they're feeding on the apple trees in towns. Uh, they're going into the cornfields and the orchards in Grand Junction, which they never used to do in the numbers they're doing it now. So they're picking up all these other food sources. The other food source that they seem to be using is they're not opposed to picking up roadkills off the interstate. Okay. So we have all these other food sources for them to take place of a natural food failure. And we've seen it quite often now with these in these years of natural food failures that the following year we'll see cubs that, or sows that have three cubs. So instead of having lost her cubs, she was fat enough to pull off three cubs. And we've seen the, it appears the statistics don't show it as clear. Um, but when I started in 1980, if you saw a sow with three cubs, that was huge news. I mean, we didn't have email, but you called everybody you knew and say, I just saw a sow with three cubs. Can you believe that? Um, now we see them routinely every year. We did an episode once about a bear called the Wisconsin Super Sow. Mm-hmm. She had five, brought them all up to 100 pounds. Two years later, had five more and brought them all up to 100 pounds. It's like a very successful. <laughs> and you know what it wound up being that she was doing? She, it seems as though she had found where the state was dumping roadkill carcasses. Right. And so just, it was like tied to that, just like fitness and a great food source and was reproductive, very savvy. And also in a funny way, very careless about her denning locations would just kind of lay out like just in a barely covered up in a brush pile. Yeah. Yeah. So we, I mean, we've seen that, um, when Tom was doing his study, we didn't think the bears and the females were breeding till they were four or five. Now it appears they're breeding er- earlier. Um, it appears that the litter size has gone up by maybe a half. Um, you know, seeing th- we haven't seen any fours yet that I have heard of. I mean, Wisconsin has it, Pennsylvania has it, where they'll have sows, they'll have four or five. Oh, so that's more common in those areas. It's more common because if you look at the food sources they have. I mean, their bears are, they generally have more bears than we do per square mile. They generally have heavier bears than we do. Okay. Um, when you look at the food source out here, um, you know, we would say a lot of the Upper Eagle Valley is not very good bear habitat because there's no oak brush above Walcott. Most all the oak brush is down here or over in the Roaring Fork Valley. I see. And oak brush is considered to be one of the key things, but the bears in the Upper Valley are making it on serviceberry and chokecherry. I mean, that, that's what they're living on. That that's their key winter survival is to get enough serviceberry and chokecherry. So if you put all those together, 
then all of a sudden, in, instead of have a population that might grow 10% a year, just a figure out of the air, now all of a sudden they're growing 15% of a, a year. I mean, that's a huge jump in a population if you can add even just 2 or 3% growth in a year. And and that does, does the fact that in a lot of units around here, the number of bear tags that are that you guys issue has been increased greatly, that's just to keep up with this growing population. Yeah, it's an effort to try to keep up with the growing yeah. population. Yep. So you got so what year was it that Colorado lost its spring season? In late nineties, mid nineties. And now so it used to, so and you just said this I'm not questioning the, the clarity with which you said this, just is surprising to me. Now, even with the loss of the spring season, more black bears are killed in Colorado annually just in the fall season alone now. And right. there's more black bears altogether than before. Right. We, we've, I'd have to look at the numbers, but we've had several years where we've harvested over a thousand bears in a year. And, Out of and, well, statewide, statewide? Statewide. Okay. It, and when we had the spring hunt and the fall hunt with bait and hounds, um, we, I don't think we ever hit a thousand. Okay. Do you find that, um, are there some pretty good bear hunters here? Like, is it is it like a thing that guys get good at, or is it does it seem to be like something that people kind of just stumble into? No, they, they, a lot of them have gotten very good at it, and in fact, part of the problem is some of them gotten so good at it um, that now when they buy a license, they're only buying a license that they're looking for a specific bear, an extremely large bear, or a certain color phase, and if they don't see it, they won't harvest a bear. Okay. And that's part of the reason we increased the tags is because we've had a num- number of these guys have gotten good and they've shot four or five bears and they're like, I don't know how many more I need to shoot. Yeah. So unless I see something really special, I'm, I'm going to go out and hunt them still, but I'm not going to pull the trigger. What are the guys that are, uh, what are the really good bear hunters? What do they do? Well, they spend uh, most of August looking for uh, either the choke cherry, service berry, or the oak brush. That's hunt the in thick. August? No, they don't hunt. They go out oh, and scout. I see. Okay. They're scouting and finding the best patches of food supplies for these bears. So they're looking for food. They're looking for the food areas, and then they're moving into those areas. When the bears move in, they're there every morning and after work with binoculars, uh, you know, scoping out four or five different spots to see where they can see bears at. And then they, once they find them at night, if it's not a good opportunity, they're back there the next morning or the next night setting up closer to where the bear was. And it's usually hunting over fruit, not hunting acorn patches. No, acorn's big. They hunt a lot of them over acorn, especially here in Eagle because Brush Creek has so much acorn. So how do you know when you go into an area with a lot of acorn, how do, how do you guys know? Uh, is it pretty obvious when a bear's working that area? Yeah. Just so people are aware, the acorns we're talking about are gamble oak. Right. Like a dinky Not like an acorn. oak tree, a, just a brushy. Yeah, very and dense. It's a dinky little acorn. Right? It's yeah. a dinky little size. A big one's the size of your little finger. Um, and when does bear season here open in the fall? Opens on this second uh, of September. Okay, and that was part of the uh, initiative that was passed by a vote of the Colorado people on when it can open. When had it opened in the past? Well, we had a spring season, and I think it opened September first on. It's been a long time since I had to ask that answer that question, but yeah. Now, Brody, what pre- what prevents you from being like a big time Colorado bear hunter guy? I I've been looking for one for this will be like six or seven years in a row. But you but look for him. It, you look for him. Sit in water. He has. He didn't know this thing. No, I spend time grouse hunting, and then I get distracted, like looking for elk when I should be looking for a bear. And 
But do you go out? Because I know you like when you're yeah. out big game. When you're hunt, hunting deer and elk, you're open to the idea of finding a bear. Well, yeah. So I'll get a tag most years. Like this year, I got a, a tag around my house, which is specific to that September bear rifle season. But as these guys have increased tag numbers, there are areas now that you can pick up a second bear tag as a B tag, like around here. So I'll get that rifle tag for September, and then pick up a B tag. So I'm packing a bear tag while I'm hunting deer and elk too. Yeah, but I've yet to uh, yet to seal the deal on my first Colorado black bear. I'm hoping that's going to change this year because I can hunt right by my house up north and spend a, like right above the house there. You, you saw all that gamble oak on yeah, the hillside yeah. and serviceberry up there. So we'll see. I would just take advantage of. Uh, Officer Andre being here and somehow tap into his electronics, commu- tap with, into his communication. Hey, you got any problem bears you need taken care of? We, we actually have people call us and ask us that. I believe it. Oh, they do? Yeah. What, what's your policy on that? If it's a place they can legally hunt, we'll tell them. But Is it really? I mean... To what to what level of specificity? Like, what would you say? Just, well, throw, I, just throw one out I, there. I mean, if I have a, a, a sheep herder losing bears or losing sheep to bear, I mean, I'll tell them... Give this person a call. Okay. You know, the, the sheep herder will probably, you'll have to understand Basque or Spanish, whatever they talk. Um, but, you know, otherwise you use hand signals and draw pictures. But most of the time they're happy to help you. Okay. I mean, it's, the problem on some of it is the bear was in the sheep in this drainage. And two days later, they're headed to another drainage. So you don't know if the bear is going to go with them or stay in that drainage. But, if, you know, if we have a, it, you know, if you have a bear in town, you certainly can't put a hunter on it. Yeah, And you really don't want to say, well, if you sit up on that hill just outside of town, that bear may walk up or down because you don't want him shooting the bear and it running into town. Yeah. So only in special circumstances does it work out. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it, you know, with the sheep, it'll work out uh, around a campground. Um, Some of the campgrounds have continuous problems with bears in the fall. And it's like, well, you're in the national forest, you know, stay away from the campground. Um, But certainly especially on weekdays after after labor days over on weekdays there's hardly anybody in the campgrounds so you just have to be the the distance forest service requires you from a campground you can set up and work that bear yeah speaking of sheep like we've had questions about predators that surplus kill what's what's your thought on a bear that goes in and kills 10 sheep in a night like what what's his motivation or I'm not uh, Doctor Doolittle. I no, don't know. No, no. We just had people ask. People like, love the subject. Yeah, yeah. Why did they? I feel that they're finding care? people like the idea. Okay, you can't deny that it happens, and I'm not asking. I'm not asking what happens. Like you can't deny that it's now and then. Like a predator is going to go in, a bear or a lion goes in and kills way more stuff than it could ever possibly consume. Sure. Yep. And I think people look. They're, they they want to hear about those because they're looking to answer something in their mind. I, I have no idea their motivation to it. Some people talk about they, you know, they get started and they just get into a frenzy. Yeah. They, they talk about the same thing with a weasel in a hen house that they just go on a killing spree. They're not counting. They're just doing what they're supposed to do. Yeah, I haven't found one yet that's very good at counting. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, they, I mean, it just happens. So... Okay, uh, we can move on from this subject, but I got one last question for you. You 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 carry a service weapon. Yes. Do you so when you're going into a situation where you have a bear cutting loose in someone's yard or house or whatever? Uh, do you have like a, a, a do you carry a separate firearm for those situations? 
Well, we, I mean, we all carry shotguns and rifles. Oh, you do? Okay. But, you know, if you're in a house, um, you sure don't want to uh, let loose a three oh eight round in somebody's house. And, and the shotgun can make a pretty big mess. It, it's generally if there's, if we're looking for a bear that's injured somebody, uh, you'll see us out with a rifle or a shotgun. Okay. If we're just going into a house because a bear broke into a house, uh, you'll see a dart gun or just, just our pistols that we always have on. So do you carry a dart gun too? We we don't have enough dart guns for every officer. Um, but like the on-call, when I'm on call, I generally pick up the dart gun. Um, we have more than one for the area. I think we have four for eight guys. So usually the on-call officer picks up one so he has it with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and otherwise, the, the problem is otherwise you store them sometimes in Glenwood, Carbondale, or here in Eagle. And if you're up in Vail, when the call comes and it's in Vail, then you got to run back here, have somebody from here bring it up to you. So usually the on-call officer picks up a dart gun and has it with them. I feel like they should supply you guys with a handful more dart guns. Well, they probably should. They're expensive little items. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're, they're pretty close to 3000 a piece. Okay. So. All right. Uh, man, we had a bunch of things we wanted to ask you about. Brody, ask the... Ask the, the While we're on bears, can we just you, like... We're get, still hitting bears? Yeah. Please, can yeah, we just get ahead. into go the ahead. other bear that may or may not be around? Oh. Or do you not want to get into no, that? No, no, no. Go ahead, Giannis. <laughs> go ahead. I <laughs> thought we were getting into this later, but... We'll get into it later. Yeah. I mean, yeah, well, okay, go ahead. Yeah, so, well, we just were hanging out with another fellow that hunts a lot in Colorado, and uh, he seems to think that very they're... Very accomplished hunter. Yeah, very accomplished hunter, spends a lot of time out there, hangs out with a lot of people that hang out, you know, that are in the woods a lot. Family's been here for a bazillion years. Yes. Homestead and days. I think the the simplest way to say it is that is that he believes that there's a, a conspiracy. Uh, I feel like about, you're leading up to this. Okay, go ahead. That there were, were that somehow the, there's were, there's grizzly bears in Colorado, but they're being they're being trapped and moved back up to Wyoming, and it's being covered up. Nobody gets to hear anything about it. In this day and age of cell phones and game cameras everywhere, I don't think you could cover anything up. I mean, are there grizzly bears in Colorado? Uh, honestly, I don't know. Um, you know, we had a wolverine come from Yellowstone. We've had our lynx go from here all the way back to Canada and Alaska where they were caught. Um, we've had wolves come down from Yellowstone. Um, could a grizzly bear do it? You bet. So if somebody says, is this possible ones here? Sure, it's possible. We don't have any definitive proof. You know, on the wolves that showed up, they got hit by a car. One got shot. One got poisoned. We got definitive proofs. Wolves have made it. We got definitive proof on lynx and the wolverine that they made the trek. Um, we just don't have any definitive proof that there's any grizzly bears in Colorado. Do you guys investigate credible reports? We look into credit. Yeah, I'm not sure investigates the right, right word, but yes, we we look into it, especially if they have a picture. Right. I mean, you'll get reports lots of time that well, this is bigger than any black bear I've ever seen, so it had to be a grizzly. Yeah. Well, well we've handled two. We handled a bear in Glenwood, uh, I think, in 2012. That 24 hours after it died, it weighed 738 pounds in August. Whoa. Yeah, and I don't always understand the size thing, because there's plenty of 200-pound, 250-pound grizzlies running around in Montana. That's the thing I don't get either, because, like, you know, grizzlies do get to, can get to be huge, but there's, like, a ton of couple hundred-pound grizzlies. And there's a lot of black bears in the United States that are way bigger than the average grizzly. Yeah. Yeah, but, I mean, everything that people see is always much bigger than 
than it really is, and, and that's just human nature. I mean, you guys have all hunted. You've all seen ground shrinkage where you shot an animal, and it's like, this is a huge buck, and it's like, huh. Yep. He sure shrunk when he hit the ground. Yeah, and everybody that runs into a lion. Big old Tom. Big old Tom. 300 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> and if, if, okay, so let's say there one did turn up or, or whatever, wouldn't it be the case that, like, there's no way you guys are going to, like, cover it up. Like, you would have to notify U.S. Fish and Wildlife because there's an endangered species aspect to it, correct? Like, they would have to become involved in some way. Or am I wrong about that? I, I don't know if they have to. No? I mean, if all it is is a sighting. But I'm saying, like, if if there was one confirmed in Colorado, like, yeah. you guys knew about I, it. I mean, certainly if we trapped one, there's no way you would keep it quiet. Right. I mean, somebody, it, it's, you know, just like everything else on the Internet, somebody's going to post yeah. that picture. Maybe only to send it to their best friend, and their best friend's going to send it to his best friend. It's going to leak. It's going to leak. It, it, and it like if they said yes they are you know if it was confirmed they are here at that point would u.s fish and wildlife have to become involved because they're an endangered species um well since or they threatened just, or what however they're they'd, uh, be very, they'd be very interesting yeah 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 i mean idaho just uh i think approved their grizzly bear right. hunt so one tag yeah i think it is one tag for idaho yeah so i i, I don't know for sure what their right. involvement would have yeah. to be in that so all right uh who wants to who who wants to lay out uh how how you guys totally screwed up how you run uh tag draws in Colorado? <laughs> <laughs> well you're the one that's complaining about not drawing. <laughs> well you, you lay it out, Brody. Oh, so this this you guys went to a new basically a new re- online retail system and new dr- kind of draw pro- like licensing draw process where you do not have to pay up front for the tag during the the application process. So in years past, you paid the full fee for the license before the the whole draw application process went through. If you didn't draw, you then got refunded that money. Now it's just a $3 application fee, no money up front. And it seems like, it doesn't seem like, like the application numbers have increased greatly because you're not investing up front in that. So we're just wondering like, was there a thought process why CPW doesn't want the money up front anymore? Or is there, like, is there some reasoning behind the process? Like, just not going through the refund thing is simpler and saves time and money? And Yeah, that's exactly it. That, I, I mean, thought you guys made a lot of money by having all that money rat holed away in a bank account. Well, I have thought that too, but I was told we don't. I think okay. everybody thought everybody that. Everybody thought that. It was like that. a big thing. Yeah, like, like CPW's making millions on interest on off of all of us. <laughs> millions you know? on interest? Well, yeah. I mean, you, you think about, unless you got a better banker than most people, <laughs> you, you know, you're looking at uh, One, a normal bank, under 1% in a normal yeah. bank account. If you get a CD for six months. But it months, wasn't even being put in a bank account. Was it? It was well, just, it was in a bank account, but I don't think just, it was creating any yeah. interest. I feel like I need to back up from it. I feel like I need, I feel like some people, some people are not going to understand fully what we're talking about. Okay. So, in instances where you have a greater demand for tags than there are hunting tags available, so there's more people that want to go hunt elk in some mountain range than the elk population can support, you uh, got to limit it all, right? And so you hand out opportunities through a lottery permit. Right. 
some every state handles this differently, but Colorado was a state where you sent in all the money, right? Yep. And then they do their drawing and refund you. But but how long would the how long would you be out your money? A couple months. Yeah, from from May to July. Okay. So someone's like out of pocket a substantial amount of money if we're talking like Right, especially if it's a, a non-resident applying for a moose, sheep, or goat tag. That's you know you're putting down a couple thousand bucks for potentially if you're applying for all three of those, you're putting down six thousand bucks for a tag that you don't even know if you're going to draw. I had heard before, not particular, not not pertaining to Colorado, but I'd heard before the reason they did the pay up front thing is because states used to do the drawing and then have people be like, "Ah, but I don't actually have the money." Okay, so it messes your whole system up. So like, okay, everybody pays up front. That way we know it's all paid for. And when we pick a guy or a woman, um, they're good for the expense because they already pay for the dang thing. So now what Colorado is doing, right, is the minute your name comes up, you get binged by the computer. They run your credit card, right? Mm-hmm. And if you if – you, they give you a couple of weeks after the the licenses that the the are announced like but if but if your credit card is not good I think this year the, the licenses were announced this week's so first week of June if if you haven't paid for that thing by June 20th you're you're and rejected. then they go down the list yeah so got like I don't understand why so many more people I've heard all kinds of numbers I heard there's a 200% increase and the amount of people applying for non-resident big game tags in Colorado. I've heard you said you used off the charts. Off the chart. You're still paying all the money. Like, what is what was people's problem? They didn't want to, like, be out the money for a couple months? Well, here's the deal. In Colorado, something that we should have explained, too, um, is that as a non-resident, you couldn't do credit card for moose, sheep, and goat. So you you couldn't just have be a guy that had, like, a credit card li- with a limit of ten grand. You actually had to have six grand in your savings and then write out three checks to for eighteen hundred bucks a piece to apply for those three. So that's like even a one step harder. Uh, yeah, harder so you couldn't than, even finance it. Yeah, you couldn't. It's finance not funny it. money. No, I didn't realize that. I got that. a couple of very stern looks when my wife would be like, "What?" Oh, I'm like, "Well, I only did sheep and moose. I didn't do all three. I, my, my, yeah, my wife when I when I you know started getting involved with my wife and we got to the point where we combined finances which we we resisted for a while but she just got fed up with she likes to just know everything what's going on and it, it, it was like the annual discussion we had to have about like she's like this cannot be real and i'm like listen <laughs> i didn't make it up it's not my choice but yes there there is a substantial sum of money scattered around in various state bank accounts and it will all come back if i don't draw and it'd be like well you better not draw <laughs> <laughs> unless you win the lottery in which case you'll be out I just, part of, of it's just this i think just a psychological barrier people are just like that eh, doesn't cost me anything i'll apply you know and i'll figure it out if i get drawn right yeah i wasn't thinking about that you actually had to write a check like you really need the money for those for those Cheap moose goat tags. Yeah. yeah. The rest of them, not... not. So what was, what's the motivation? Like, to why m- change it? Well, I think to make a better system. I mean, it, you, you still had people that were doing paper applications. And, you know, every time you'd use a credit card, you'd get charged a fee. Mm-hmm. So you're getting charged a fee to 
to take the person's money as the credit card. And then instead of refunding it back on the credit card, we were writing them a check. So every time you write a check, there's a cost to write a check. Okay. So, that, I mean, there was a huge cost savings to do away with that fee. So running the draw costs money. Yes. Yeah. And it just simplified the whole administrative process of it. I mean, I mean it will as we work all the bugs yeah. out. Anytime you open a new system, doesn't matter what it is, yeah. that, I mean, there's going to be bugs. I mean, some people were getting notified 10 times that they'd got a license. And they're like, did I get 10 licenses? They're like, dang, I'm going to need a bigger yeah. freezer. Today's a good year. <laughs> Today's a good day. I got 10 deer tags. So, <laughs> no, they got the te- email 10 times. I mean, there's just going to be glitches in any new yeah. system you have, and, and they just have to be worked through. The fact that more people put in, and I haven't seen the numbers yet either, but I have heard that it is a significant increase in the number of people putting in. Um, the fact that more people put in, it seems like, well, something worked. Yeah, well, I have three different perspectives on it, and they're, and they're competing. They're, they're contradictory. One is, just from a purely, like, what's in it for me? My, I remember my ninth grade government teacher, Al Young, would always express everything in the world where he would say, like, and remember, I'm only concerned with what affects Al Young. And that was, like, that was how he explained government, right? He would, he would discourage students from getting registered. He's like, why would I want you people to vote? Why would I want to dilute my vote? So that was like, so in looking at it from the Al Young perspective, I'm bummed because now I have more competition to draw a permit. So that, that's pretty selfish, and I recognize that, but there's a part of my brain that holds that to be true. Part three, or part two, in my competing perspectives on this, part two is I'm usually not resistant to there being barriers to entry because it winds up being that the more dedicated, right, that the, the it favors the more dedicated people. Like I remember for a while in Montana, you had to buy your bear license before bear season opened. Their thinking was they wanted to, they wanted to prevent people from getting a bear and then running down and getting a tag. Because in the spring season, they would find that it was a lot of just sort of incidental harvest. And so they're like, well, we're going to limit like people who are, planning to go bear hunting making a specific effort to go on a bear hunt so you have to buy it that law came in i thought you know i get it that makes sense there are people who are like dedicated to it they're on top of it they're following the rules they know what's going on right and it it gives a favoritism to that they since got rid of that and i was a little bit saddened by it now part three the part that competes is there shouldn't be any barriers to entry right it should be just more wide open, more availability, easier for people to participate. So I believe I feel all of these things, even though they don't all line up. Meaning, I see both sides of the story, or all three sides of the story. Um, I, I agree with that. I'm a little saddened, <laughs> kind because of, that part one part about like I'm concerned only with what affects Al DeYoung part is like I really am like you know I'm looking at it, I'm like really that just got harder. So, well, it got easier, harder, harder to draw, easier right. to get. And that, that's another thing is we're like, we're constantly hearing like about hunter numbers just falling, 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 but yet it's like harder and harder to get a tag at what, and how, how does that, how do those two things kind of line up with each other? If there's less hunters, why is it harder to get? Because the, the numbers <laughs> that are falling are the dudes that used to buy like a, 
used to hunt pheasants for a day. But there's more guys that are getting serious there's, about. There's way yeah. more. I, the the yeah. number of like, the, the number of like hardcore hunters. Yeah. I feel like has to be. Well, oh, your chopper's here to take you to Denver, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> He's gonna drop me in on a hunting spot on the way. Give me the coordinates for that, will you? let's <laughs> <laughs> run over there real quick and issue me a citation <laughs> so less serious hunters is it gone oh, okay um yeah i like i don't know i feel there's i feel the number of like really dedicated hunters who are like out there you know applying for permits and right. crawling back into all the hidey holes is going up right what do you think um yeah i think in some areas it is definitely I mean, we're seeing that. But a lot of it is, uh, I mean, you guys are perfect examples. How many different states do you put in for? So you could have the same number of hunters and, and 20% of them decide, I'm going to put into two states this year instead of one. Yeah. And, and so those two states see an increase in the number they get. And I think that's a lot of it. Can you speak at all just quickly to that declining, you know, supposed declining number of hunters? Like we're just like hearing all these doomsday scenarios all the time. Well, I don't know if it's doomsday, but uh, unfortunately, I represent that um, in that our average age of hunters is getting older every year. And, and you would think, well, of course, everybody's a year older. But if you got a 60-year-old guy and you bring in a 14-year-old kid, you just drop that age mm-hmm. level way down. So it, it's the fact that, that we're an aging pot. The baby boomers are aging and I think it's, I can't remember if it's 55 or 56, but it's in the 50s somewhere is the average age of a hunter. And, you know, everything's coming. They're looking more golf time. They may not be in the same shape. Um, you got travel restrictions in a lot of areas. Um, this, the cost of getting places. If you're coming from another state to, to hunt here, uh, it's getting more and more expensive. So, I mean, I definitely, if you go out, if you went out and spent a day with us, when you go into camps, you remember the camp where you can say, there was two people under 30 years old in that camp. Or that wow. camp was everybody under 20. Yeah. They were all young kids out there hunting. I mean, you walk in. That's an, I feel that that's, that's all an, I run into is that's young dudes. an anomaly you're saying now. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it used to be nothing to see um, families out there, maybe just the mom, maybe just the dad, but they'd have two or three kids with them. Sometimes they weren't old enough to hunt, but they were out there. Now you might see that on a Saturday or Sunday, but they're all gone by Monday. So it's, in your opinion, it's a recruitment thing. It is definitely a a recruitment and a retention. When we went to totally limited deer tags, and I don't remember the number, but we lost a lot of deer hunters, and they really haven't come back. Because they used to be over-the-counter Used to be over-the-counter. You could could make the decision. Here you could make the decision a couple days after you had to go to a uh, Division of Wildlife office and buy your license there after the season open, but you could get an over-the-tag deer hunt and go whenever you wanted. Yeah. Now it's it's all draw, and a lot of the people have just, they're like, you know, I just don't want to fight with it. It takes me two years or three years to get a tag. I just don't want to do it. Um, Brody, can you tee up the shed hunting thing? You guys like actually came in, and now you manage sheds like game, you, you manage shed antlers like game animals now. There's, Close. Rule, there's rules around it. There is yep. rules around it. So, uh, I mean, I could, I'll speak to my history of it. I used to get after it pretty hard. Um, you know, shed hunting has gotten more and more popular in the West, all over the place, really. 
Um, but it's like highly competitive. And it, it got to the point where there were days when I'd go out shed hunting in late winter, early spring, where I would see more guys out shed hunting than I would ever see during rifle deer season. Like running in. Yeah. It's so weird. Cause like when I was a boy, it would be that, uh, if you saw one, you might pick it up. But also, like the whole country decided that it, it was just this that the thing. most important yeah. thing you could be doing is being out picking up antlers. Yeah. And, and I look, I, I got pretty serious about it for a while, but then I started like. Because you were trying of, to make money on it. Well, because the chew toy market. No, I mean, I just collected them and liked looking at them. Before we moved, I sold a bunch for a couple thousand you bucks. Did. But um, so you had enough to you had enough to make it worth selling. Mm-hmm. Because that's another thing. And just to like, have we talked about this before? That the market. So there's a commercial market for antlers, and it was the chandelier. So like antler chandeliers became popular. So there became a market for chandeliers and decorations. And then the chew toy market took off, where they buy antlers and saw them up and sell them for an ungodly amount of money in pet stores. They do all sorts with them. They grind them up into powder. They, they yeah, for yeah. DJAC. No, that's only with velvet. But yeah, is there anything else that you know of, Bill? That the antlers are sold or used for after they're sold? No, that, I mean those are the three main things that they okay. go overseas and then chew toys and. But I don't even know if that commercial market is even close to being the main problem. No, but but it's this. But here's the point I'm getting at, and I, I can't tell you that this is actually true or not. But what feels to me, what seems to me correlated is. As the commercial market developed, the recreational market became like people all of a sudden ascribed a value to it. For instance, with morels, when you hear that morels are worth X dollars a pound in a restaurant, it increases people's interest. They're They're like, ooh, that's something I'd like to find and eat. If they're so valuable, it makes me want to go do it. For instance, like... Trap and spot, trap and spot prawns or spot shrimp. Knowing that that's the most like we trap them, and in my mind I get sort of like I can't help but get slightly more excited about it, knowing that it's the most expensive shrimp. And then when you hear that they're going for like thirty some dollars a pound, I'm like, wow, you're running the numbers in your head. And then I'm and I'm and I'm like, kind of sinfully almost viewing them differently, knowing the value. So I feel that as that chew toy market and chandelier market came in. People also also were like, I just want to find it and have it laying around, and because I now recognize the value, and get a picture of you holding it on social media. I yeah. mean, that's a, a huge part of Dude, it. Yeah, people do grip and grins with antlers. Yeah, man. Like, so you didn't do anything. You just picked the damn thing yeah, up. Yeah, I mean, but they it is like as big as having a picture of you holding the big buck. If you're holding a set of matched antlers, man, that's like. People just don't. Yeah. So now we can have Bill tell us why this increase um, yeah, was a problem. Out. Yeah. What happened? All of a sudden, every Tom, Dick, and Brody <laughs> is out <laughs> scrounged around on the woods for antlers. Yeah. And, and they're competitive about it. I, I want to get there before Brody. And from out of state, even. From, from, well, yeah. Well, part of the problem was, you know, Wyoming's always had closures on winter range. So you couldn't go there and hunt stuff. But on very specific patches of ground, right? Right, right. But there was still closures. And, and then uh, Utah did their, it was free, but you had to do the permit over the internet, take an educational test on it and, and go, no big deal. 
But what we saw is as other places close things, and as you get units like we're sitting in here now, 44, that's a trophy deer unit. A known, yeah. A known trophy deer unit where people are doing the grips and grins with their harvested 230, 240 bucks. People are like, I want to go there, and I want to go there in the spring, and I'll scout, and I'll pick up antlers, and I'll know what I'm looking for. And, and it's, it was no longer the recreation guy that maybe on Saturday there's 10 people in Eagle County out hunting it. it it's like on Monday, there's 500 people out there hunting it. And on Tuesday, there's 500 people out there hunting it. And on Wednesday, I don't know, 500 is the right number. But but what people forget is, I mean, I don't know that Brody walked up the same hill yesterday that I'm going to walk up today. So you're looking at an animal again. Remember, these does are all pregnant. They're in their third trimester. They're coming off of starvation. They're starving during the winter, no matter what the winter is. Yeah, your quote is, winter weekend, spring kills, right? Right. And it's, I mean, you're, you're looking at all these things and now you got these people out there pushing deer. We've, we've had reports. I haven't seen it, but I, I believe it will happen that people are out chasing the bucks, trying to get them in, in December, trying to get them excited where they run and maybe knock their antlers off. I've heard many in December, even in December. Well, I, I mean, I've seen it out of a helicopter that as you're counting deer, they jump a fence and an antler drops off. But certainly even February, you know, yeah. Like, yeah. I've heard many reports, some like firsthand reports of people seeing uh, like a bull that's already dropped one and trying to chase it, thinking that the other one's got to be ready to fall. Right. And, and there's, I mean, I've seen it firsthand of people every night on their way home for work stop at a place that has elk winter range. There was seven bulls there yesterday. There's only five today, but there's seven elk. They drop their antlers. The next morning, they're up there looking for them. Well, the next guy comes in. He doesn't know somebody else is going to do it. I'm going to go up there tonight. You know, and then that's, well, I didn't find it, but they got to be there because they're still there. So they go up the next day. You just keep pushing these animals and you're just, you're impacting the animal that you want to be as healthy as possible to produce the best offspring and, and to have the biggest set of antlers they can for those that are looking for a trophy animal. Because it's just a time of year where those animals cannot afford to burn extra calories. Right. That's kind of the, the the irony of it, right? Is that in looking for antlers, you're sort of celebrating this emblem of like a really healthy, mature animal. But in doing it, you're impairing its ability to become a big, healthy, mature animal. And you're impairing the ability for that herd to grow. I mean, if you stress those does enough that they don't put on, you know, in, in, this, in about April, these animals can start to gain weight. And that's really crucial for those does they start to gain weight because lactation is the most energy requiring item they're going to go through in their life so they're coming out of a starvation they're trying to put weight on they're going to give birth they're going to go right into lactation i mean they got to have time to pick up whatever weight they can if if that doe doesn't get enough food to do good lactation those fawns don't make it or they make it as a runt so just like we talked about on the bear now you got a an age class that either didn't make it or they're subpar, so they don't make it through the winter. And if that doe or cow's in bad enough shape, they won't breed in the fall because they're they're just not in good enough shape to get pregnant. Yeah. And so people are clear that the new rule is west of I-25, you cannot shed hunt on public land bef- before May 1st. Correct. Yeah. Have you, had to, have you issued a citation? Um, in some areas we've issued citation. In other words, we had a closure here, so we could issue citations. Um, in some of the areas west of I-25, they hadn't had a closure, so they have to give just warnings 
Now, if I, if I warn you and I see you out the next day, I can issue a citation. Okay. But because it's a new rule, we generally give them a grace period that you'll just get a warning. Oh, I see. Just it. for wearing it. For the just, first year. Yeah. Yeah. Did, did you notice, do you feel that that's going to be effective? Like, have you, did you kind of notice a change in, in? I mean, there's, well, the change we noticed was uh, we had several people here in Eagle that got permission to hunt on private land. And that somebody would see them walking the fence line, and maybe they were over the fence line, maybe they weren't, but they were turning them in. Oh. And then the guy would say, well, I saw Brody down there glassing me. That's, I saw that sucker up on this side doing it. So they're turning one another. <laughs> you know, I was walking into a spot to, to rabbit hunt in February, and there was a lady that I see hiking in a certain area with her dog, and she's like, you know... There's a, you're not supposed to be shed hunting. I was like, I'm rabbit hunting. It's okay. <laughs> so, so what is the exact prohibition? It's picking it up. Uh, actually, it, going from memory, I haven't read it in a month or so, but it's actually uh, searching for it, marking it, or picking it up. So if you're out there with your GPS and marking wow. it, you've got a problem. I got you. So then it kind of gets into... Um, you got to stop a dude walking around in the woods and be like, what exactly is your intention right now? Well, you, you don't have to necessarily stop them if you watch them. And, and you know, you, you see them doing this grid pattern. Okay, yeah, Not yeah. many people hunt rabbits right. in a grid pattern. Yeah. And then they don't stop and do this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I saw a bunny here. Let me mark that yeah, spot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there again, it's, it's, you know, it's the circumstances and you got to put the whole picture together. But Was there quite a bit of blowback? Were people pissed about it? There was a lot of people pissed about it. But mo- what, what, what did they view it? Were they, were they annoyed because, man, I like to hunt shed antlers, and now I'm annoyed? Or were they annoyed because this is a weird way for government to kind of step into one's life? Um, I think more of it was, uh, well, more of it was actually, I'm obeying the rule, but he's not. Oh. I want you to do something about yeah, it. Yeah, so, yeah, I can see that. You know, Everyone's going to go anyway, but now I don't feel like yeah. I can go and... I mean, I think what you'll see is more and more states do this, you'll really dilute the impact to each one of the states because, you know, if Wyoming had it that you can't hunt there during these months, well, they come here. And, and if Utah has something, well, they can't go there. And I, I think Nevada's done, there's four or five different states Montana now. Montana has some seasonal yeah. closures, I know. Yeah, but I think that's mainly on their state properties. Winter, yeah. yeah, state yeah. game management, yeah. like winter range yeah. areas. So, it, I mean, I think you're going to see, but, you know, part of it is, is we've been pushing, especially uh, in this area and in the resort areas, that the level of recreation. I mean, as I sit here and look out, there's probably been 100 people go by this path up above us, which yep. isn't a big deal. It's not a spring winter or spring area or, or winter range right now, but the recreation has become such a huge issue here. And there's been a lot of studies done on the impact of any type of recreation or human disturbance on these animals that we felt you'd be a hypocrite not to say that, hey, you're out hunting sheds. You're impacting these animals just like a person running, mountain biking, horseback riding, or ATVing out there. We got to step back and say, we got to protect this too. I mean, it's not about the sheds. It's about protecting those animals that are out there trying to make the living through the winter and and come into spring in good shape so they can reproduce. Yeah. Yeah. It's a pro-wildlife should be viewed as a pro-wildlife, pro-hunting move. Right. Oh, yeah. Yep. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacovas is your stop before attending your next concert. Tacovas 
has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. And Tacova's has first wear comfort, meaning you put them on, they feel great. Little or no break-in, period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Plus, their direct-to-consumer pricing keeps value on your feet and money in your pocket. Just ask my buddy Chili, who's been slipping around in his Tacova boots, talking about how great he feels in them. He loves them. Yeah, Steve, they're very comfortable. They're very fashionable. And I enjoy wearing mine around the office and anywhere I go around Bozeman. Stop by your local Tacova's store. Have a complimentary drink and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and a friendly staff are at your service. Many stores have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it to a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. And find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey, everybody. I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who over recent months I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, watch that video. And in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company. Working knives for working people, 10% off with the code Meat Eater. That's a good deal. Hey, you know when you take uh, some time to clean out, uh, let's say, like clean out your garage, and you're like, man, how was I living like that with that place such a mess? Well, check this out. If you've been paying a fortune for wireless, and then you switch over to Mint Mobile and get plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you'll be saying, how was I ever affording to do that way I did it before? It's time to switch, okay, to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. To get this new customer offer and get your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. And you will cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month. Again, mintmobile.com slash meat eater. It's a $45 upfront payment required, which is the equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Um... 
Are there really like a whole ton more moose in Colorado now than there used to be? Well, we reintroduced them in the late 70s. Okay. And our population now. Is, I, didn't, I didn't realize you guys had to do a reintroduction here. Yeah, we did so a reintroduction. So they had been wiped out. Well, I don't know. If, well, yeah, wiped out or just no longer here. I don't, believe it or not, I wasn't around in those years when uh, when moose might have been here before with uh, country was settled. But uh, we reintroduced them up in North Park. So we went from, I think it was 78, 78, 79, we reintroduced them, and now we have about uh, just a little over 3,000 moose in the state. We uh, hunt them in uh, 60 different GMUs, and we give out uh, uh, like 450 tags each year for moose. And you're adding more hunts and new units yep. almost every year now. Almost every year we we add some more. So yeah, I mean, I'm sure you're aware that, like, in, in a lot of the northern tier states, moose are in real trouble yep. because of, primarily because of some pathogens, but then also because of increased predation in some areas. And just like it's a pretty bleak picture, um, you know, from Maine, Minnesota, westward, uh, it's a, like a pretty bleak picture in certain patches of moose range. So I was curious to hear that moose seem to be doing there seems to be more moose every year in colorado right right i what? mean we we don't have brain worm here okay hopefully we won't um you know our, our tick situation isn't the same as the like minnesota maine um i mean i was up in idaho recently and you couldn't walk outside in in may in idaho without picking up ticks um, we don't have the same level of ticks and and ticks are becoming a big issue for them um, we're at a little bit of a higher elevation than a lot of these places. It may not be. So certainly the ticks, the lack of the brain worm, and, and a lot of these places where you see the moose population going down um, always seems to be where there's a good number of white-tailed deer. Yeah. And so far in western Colorado, we don't have a large uh, influx of white-tailed deer. So I think that, that plays a little and bit. And they're the vector for the brain worm. Right. Yep. But definitely, you know, Anytime you bring an animal into a habitat that they haven't occupied that, that's good, there's kind of a niche that's waiting for them. Mm-hmm. So you can see this huge jump. You see it in a reservoir when a new reservoir is created. Fishing's great for the first five or six years, and then all of a sudden it really tapers off. Yeah. Um, so that's where we You put some turkeys in, and then a while later it just explodes, and yep. then it kind of settles yeah, down. They kind of hit that level that now we can really grow the population and then they kind of plateau or or drop down. So we're still in the in the climbing stages. Even from like so so that's interesting that even from the late seventies, they're still sort of doing that thing of like establishing new territory and exploiting a niche that hadn't been exploited before. Right. Yeah. Okay. I mean, we moved them to North Park. We moved them to the Grand Mesa. We moved them to the Flat Tops. Uh, moved them down in the southwest part of the state. Um, the actual the ones in Eagle County here all came on their own. We haven't transplanted any of these in. Okay. Um, I mean, the first moose that I knew of showed up in about 1982 walking through the town of Vail. And by, uh, I think it was 1990, we had them wintering in Homestake. Um, so they've kind of they've kind of taken off and, and done it on their own. I think part of what we're seeing, um, especially around the resort towns, is in some places we may not have reached the habitat's capability to handle them. But we may have reached the fact that they're moving into towns. They're happy to live in a town. Yeah, I live near Steamboat, and there's a lot of human moose conflict in Steamboat. Yeah. They're really surprisingly tolerant of of people in the way, like even in Anchorage, where they'll just settle in and like spend their whole winter in some in a yard. Yep. 
they're, they're tolerant until you make the wrong step. Yeah. And, and then they're going to tap dance on you. Yeah. Then they'll, they'll, they'll occasionally kill people. Yeah. Yep. So it, I mean, um, I, I think, you know, steamboats an echo example, you know, we had some problems in Vail, uh, last winter, the winter before that, uh, the moose were actually licking the cars to get the mag chloride off it. Um, and, and that was causing problems to, it was right by the hospital to have people trying to get in and out of the hospital with moose standing by their car, licking the side of their car. <laughs> so it, it's one of those that sometimes you're going to hit a, a political carrying capacity that, Hey, we need to reduce moose in this area because of these problems. Yeah. You hit the, the, the social limit. Right. Do you, as are you guys having whitetail encroachment? Um, we're definitely seeing whitetail along the Colorado River. We've had a few along the Eagle River, um, like in places they'd never been seen before. Never been seen before. Do you have? Is there a policy here to because this is world famous mule deer country, and and it's like that's kind of culturally what people are accustomed to seeing, and it's a celebrated animal, and we know that whitetails don't do a lot of good for mule deer. And you have moose, and whitetails aren't great for moose. Is there, uh, is there sentiment like public sentiment or pressure coming from hunters that let's do what we can to not allow the whitetail intrusion into these areas? Yeah, you you get it both ways. You get those saying let's get rid of the whitetails, and others saying, hey, I'd really like to shoot a whitetail. Who's got the Who's got the louder voice? Well, right now I think it's getting rid of the whitetails. I mean, there are certain areas in the state that they've done unlimited tags, Okay, you know, oftentimes on private land. You know, the big problem is, I mean, if you know a whitetail from a mule deer and you've seen enough of them, it's easy to tell the difference. Some people haven't seen enough of them, and we worry about somebody shooting the wrong one if, if they aren't familiar with it. Um, but there's yeah. been discussions going on. Um, we have a few people with private land here that uh, they're like, hey, I, I really like seeing the whitetails. They're neat. I don't want to get rid of them. And we have other people that say, can I shoot And that? when you say, like, as far as the confusion, you're talking about if you were to issue whitetail-only tags for right. this area, you'd be worried that people would shoot mule deer. Yeah. But as it stands now, I'm just buying a deer tag for this area. So if I saw a whitetail, I'm good to shoot it. Yes. Yep. That, it's an interesting point about not being able to, to see them because there's, like, I grew up all around whitetails and hunting whitetails. And when I first moved out west, when I saw a deer for a couple of years, I would have to sort of like look at it, you know, consciously like look at it to figure out what I was looking at. As familiar as I was with one, the, the sort of search patterns or the clues I saw in the animal were more like when you see a deer, it's just a deer because there's not an option in, in Michigan. They're all whitetails. And it actually took me a little while of like looking at both to get to where you just like instantly and instinctively know one from the other, um, it doesn't come automatically. Like you can have deep familiarity. Like I, just like I think you can have like deep familiarity with looking at black bears all the time, and and probably very quickly confuse a grizzly for a black bear. You need to have a lot of experience of looking at both, right? Because if not, when you see it, an idea jumps in your mind, but you're not like separating the two of them out, right? So uh, you can see that like whitetail, like guys who just hunted whitetails all the time could make a snap decision and shoot a mule deer because when they look, they just see deer. Yeah, exactly. They see deer. They, you know, if the antlers are there, it's much easier. Yeah. Most guys are going to see that that rack just doesn't look right. But if they're hunting antlerless, you know, they they aren't thinking 
wow, those ears look small. That head looks small. Yeah. You know, the whole animal looks small. It's like, ah, oh, it's just a yearling. I'll take it. Yeah. So. What else, man? Here you are, bro. Do you have a, a genuine game warden from your home area? I don't know. We've covered a lot of ground. Oh, you know what we didn't touch on is uh, he was, Bill, I think we want to talk to Bill about some declining elk numbers mostly. Oh, yeah. And and what the reasoning is behind that. Because I know, you know, back when Giannis lived in this area and, and we're, you know, we were both doing a lot of elk hunting around here, it was very easy to pick up an extra cow tag. I mean, to the point where some were going unsold. And now we're to the point where the tags have been reduced a bunch and you guys have some concerns about certain elk herds. Yeah, Colorado has what? I mean, vastly more elk than any other state. Yeah, what is yeah, the latest? hundred grand more than the next state, I think. What Than Montana. Is it still hovering in that 200,000? 200, 200, yeah. Well, it's, two, it's almost 300. Well, I think it's more like 230. Oh, is it? Yeah. Is it? Yeah. We came down from when we, I think we used okay. to be around 250. We've okay. reduced it since then. But you've been actively reducing the numbers by issuing more cow tags. Right. In a lot of the units we yeah. were. Yep. 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 Trying to trying to reduce the herd numbers because of conflicts. Yep. But now you've got some concerns about certain. Yeah, we got some big concerns in, in certain areas. This is one of the areas from what we call E16, which is the units uh, 45, 44, 444, uh, and I think it's 47 on the Aspen side that we've just seen a, uh, a significant decline since 2002 in that elk herd. I mean, almost 50% decline. What's going on there? Grizz? <laughs> <laughs> Grizz and whitetails, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it'd be wonderful if you could say there was just one thing. Um, but as with most things with wildlife, there's never just one silver bullet that this is what's causing it. But certainly if it, the big part we feel we're seeing is uh, the human encroachment. Development skier is... Uh, you know, it used to be known for its winter recreation in this area. Now it's known for the summer recreation. It's a loss of habitat. Loss of habitat, fragmentation of habitat. I mean, the same thing we talked about with shed hunters. Um, any of you guys that have had kids, you know, if your kids are fussy and you're the only parent in the house and you sit down and try to have dinner, you don't get a whole lot of dinner because you're up dealing with the kids. So it's it's no different for deer or elk that they're trying to fill their belly in the summer. And a group of recreationists come through and disturb them. And 20 minutes later, there's another group. So instead of feeding above the alpine, maybe for three or four hours in the morning, they get an hour worth. And then they have to go back, lay down in the trees. And then they come out and try and do it at night. This this whole other form of recreation, of recreating at night. Um, we used to have a, a rafting at night with uh, night vision goggles. That was a big thing. And then now you have uh, mountain bike races and 24-hour running races, so you have people out at night training for those. And it's just getting to the point where the animals don't have a time to be alone. Solitude's important to them. The chance to feed at every possibility is important to them, not having to move and burn energy. And then you add upon that, uh, there hasn't been much habitat improvement done. We haven't had any big fires uh, you had predators in the mix. Um, you know, if, if you're, we know from our study we did in the 90s in the Upper Eagle Valley 
that if humans go in during the calving season in the calving areas, we can we can drop the cow-calf ratio down by almost half too. But going back to the bear-lion thing we were talking about earlier, that's that's the increasing number of bears and lions is yep. having an effect too. Yep. I mean, we know that bears and lions are very effective predators on, on calves and fawns. Um, and, and we've had uh, more than enough radio-collared adult cows killed by lions in the winter to know they're pretty effective on them in the winter. And you get to that point where you get your population low enough, normally it's considered that you know predators aren't a huge issue if you have a healthy population. They're, it's what we call um, a comp- compensatory mortality. In other words, they're going to kill 50 elk but probably 40 of those elk were going to die anyways. They were going to, something else might have killed them. They might have had a wounding loss. They break a leg, they starve. Um, But when you get to a certain level, you kind of reach that straw that breaks the camel's back and every animal you lose, it doesn't matter how you lose it, it is an additive effect. There's no longer enough animals to say it's compensatory. So what we've done in this unit, um, we've cut the licenses up to last year down by 75%. Um, this year, we took the cow licenses down to 10 cow licenses in every season. Wow. So there's going to be a lot of people that were used to getting cow tags in those years. Wow, are, 10 a season. 10 a season. Per, and, and per GMU. Per GMU, yep. Yep, so like, you know, first season for elk, you can hunt the whole data analysis unit. So you buy one license, and it's good for all those units. Mm-hmm. In the second season, when you buy a license for 45, it's only good for 45. So there's 10 cow tags in 45 in the second season. Third season, there's 10. In the fourth season, there's 10. So, I mean, that's a, it's a huge cut in the number of licenses. Um, we're looking to run it up the chain of command and, and through the commission to look at maybe limiting bull licenses, um, maybe doing what they did in the flat tops, limiting archery licenses, it might go to a totally limited elk unit to to reduce all of that pressure. In addition to that, I would propose that only hunters are allowed to ever go into the woods. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> that, those are some big changes. Th- those are huge changes. And we're seeing it. Uh, um, we just met with our research group uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, they're looking at drumming up some funding to try to get some collars put on uh, cows. And we'll also put uh, a vaginally inserted transmitter so when they calve, that transmitter will come out. It'll send a signal they're calving. And then we'll go in and capture the calf and put a collar on that calf and determine what happens to that calf. Okay. Does it die because of a predator? Um, Does it just die because it was in bad shape? Does it make it through? Does it make it through the first two months and then die? You know, does it make it to winter and then die? Figure out when, when are we losing these calves? How, when you're doing something like that, how many collars do you, or how many tags or collars do you have to have out in order for it to begin to be helpful? Well, I mean, that's way outside of my knowledge, but the, the number they're talking about is like 60. Okay. So at that point, you, get, you can start to get a good picture. You start to get a picture. I mean, then you rely on, on the computers. The, you put all the information into the computer with some parameters, and it spits out what it, what it should be seeing. Okay. So is this um is that trend statewide or is it region specific like are there areas in Colorado where the elk are just kicking ass or in, in Meeker they're doing good and and it's funny you ask that because um just across the road in what we call E12 which is 35 36 and 361 I70 is the only thing that separates them not a uh, 
not a blockage for predators to move, not a blockage for wintertime or summertime. And that elk herd was pretty well maintaining itself. Um, this year was a, was a strange year with the snowfall. And we had some issues getting a helicopter permit. Um, but we were running in the high 30s, low 40s for a winter cow-calf ratio. Um, this year on the other side, all of a sudden it went to 28. Explain that for a minute. Uh, how many calves per 100 cows. Okay. So you, you would normally want to see in the winter uh, above 40 calves per 100 cows to have a healthy population. And, and on the north side of I-70, we were maintaining that pretty easy. At what number? At 40 to 50. So that's basically like almost year olds. They're, they're nine months old or whatever when you're right. counting them. Okay. Right. Yeah, so, we're counting them December and January. Okay. Right. Um, they made it through the hunting season by then. Made it through the hunting season. You know, December is still a lot of winter to go and spring to go, so you can always lose some. But we we do in certain areas more on deer than elk, but in certain areas we have deer herds that they have enough collars on them. They can tell us that the fawn mortality in this area was 30% and the doe mortality was 5 or 10%. The nice thing about the south side of I-70 is, is we had over 300 marked animals from starting in about 1984 till about 2000. So we knew a lot about those elk. We knew what their survival was. We were, we were watching elk that had no teeth left in their head produce calves year after year. And then in a really bad winter, the cows would succumb to that bad winter. But we were getting cows we thought were 20 years plus being reproductively successful. So we, we had all that information to see that herd all of a sudden plummet like it has. And on the other side of the highway, it was staying pretty stable. Now, like I say, this year was a, was a different year in our counts. We didn't get to count on the south side of I-70. We only did the north side. There was very little sl- snow. It makes the animals harder to find. But we went from a um, 40 calves per 100 cows down to 28. So something's happened in that unit yeah. that, bang, all of a sudden we've seen it. We've watched on the south side of I-70 this just kind of steady decline, even though we keep reducing the licenses every year, the herd keeps going down. Now to see it on the other side, it's like, okay, something's going on. They're seeing it in Montrose. They're seeing it, uh, I think, down in the San Luis Valley. Um, Steamboat, I, I think, is saying they're starting to see kind of the same thing. Meeker, the elk herd's doing great. And, that, and I mean, the only reason a, a, an elk herd is going to decline like that is a calf recruitment issue, right? Right. Right. Well, I mean, it could decline like that in a, in a severe winter. You right, can lose right. adults too. But yeah, if yeah. you're... It's just like everything else. If you don't have any young of the year coming up, you're in trouble. And, and we did a uh, part of the reason we did the study we did in the Upper Eagle Valley is th- those elk were totally available to you in the summer. They were all above the Alpine. You could put people out with a spotting scope, and and in one or two people could watch a group of two to three hundred elk and see how many calves yep. were nursing on the cows. I mean, we had radio collared cows. And we would have to watch that cow for over 300 minutes to see if a calf nursed. Lots of times in the first 10 minutes you get there, you'd see a calf nurse, so you know that's a successful cow. Sometimes on the ones that were barren, you had to watch them the full 300 to say after 300 minutes, we never saw that cow nurse a calf. So we, you know, we would go up. We did it. We did the search there because one, we, we had the skier is to be able to kind of keep people out. It allowed us to keep one area that there was no interaction with people in the other area. We brought people in to go do the disturbance. Then they were available to us in the summer to watch. So we went out last year because we've been talking for two or three years of doing a recreation impact study. 
what is the impact of recreation on trails to these elk. Uh, we wanted to see if we could get the same results they got out of the Starkey Research Area um, that the Forest Service has. So we went up and flew last year in a fixed wing, and in places where I normally would see two to 300 elk, we saw none. Um, we put in uh, two and a half hours of flying, and we saw 18 elk in the alpine. They did the next week, they did the frying pan, and they, I think they saw 22 elk in the alpine. So either the elk were, if they were there at all, they were feeding before daylight, and by daylight they were gone. It was not unusual when we were flying to see people hiking. Um, they were already at the top of the mountain at 7 a.m. in the morning. So what, So just so people know, you were flying over alpine high country, like treeless, treeless. meadows. Yep. Yeah. So if you weren't seeing elk, they, they may have been in the timber already. They could have been down below in the timber. Yeah. But, you know, from doing it since uh, 1984, they normally would be out till 10 o'clock in the morning. And if there's a snow field, because the bugs, they like to lay on the snow field to stay cool and it keeps the bugs away from them. I mean, they weren't even on the snow field. So it was just nothing. So summer recreation, you're thinking. Of. Loving it to death, man. Loving it to death. I mean, if you if you look at it, if you've lived here long enough or you do that recreation, I mean, it's 24-7, 365 days a year there's recreation in this valley now. And, and if you look at Montrose, it's the same thing. Each one of these towns wants to become a summer recreation mecca. So do you foresee any, like, I mean, do you issue daily permits for certain areas for recreational use or like, I mean, what would be the way it just limit use somehow is what, what would be. Well, the... li limit use, but also educate the people. Um, I mean, we did a uh, town of Ale, ran a nice program, a, a wildlife forum this winter. Um, I was there, the forest service was there. There was two private consultants there and we addressed those type of issues. And the forest service provided a, I mean, just an amazing figure that they had a trail that was closed for elk calving and mule deer migration, closed in the spring. And so they went out and put a camera on it. And in 10 days, they found 200 people on the trail. So it's like, hey, here's a closed trail trying to give these animals a place to go. And 200 people used it. And that was just on one section of the trail. There was other sections they could have been on and not used that, seen that camera. Well, out of that, there was enough hunters, mountain bikers, and hikers, trail runners that said, well, what can we do? And so the Forest Service got them to be volunteers, and they're standing on those trail closures on weekends. They put up gates. So it's not just a sign. Now it's a gate. But these guys are standing there. Guys and gals are standing there saying, this trail's closed. If you want a mountain bike, you should go here. If you want to hike, you ought to go there. So just some more education, yep. making people understand that you are the impact. Um, they did an interesting study on Antelope Island in Utah where they went out and they talked to the people that were recreating and they said, uh, yeah, you're a, you're a mountain biker. Do you think you have any impact on it? No. But those horseback riders, they screw up everything. Ask the horseback riders, those hikers, it's them. They screw it all up. Point the finger at everyone else. Ask the hikers, it's the mountain bike riders. Nobody thought they were the impact. It was always somebody else. And, and it's, I mean, I understand the, that type of thinking on it, and it's like, it's just me and my dog. We just walked up the trail at, at 9 o'clock in the morning. There wasn't anybody else there. Well, but you weren't there at 10 o'clock when three other people did, or at 10.30 when four people did. I mean, every hour there's somebody on that trail, and that kind of constant irritation and disturbance is tough on animals. It's interesting through talking about all this from 
black bears and mountain lions having conflicts in town to you know agricultural practices that might allow white-tailed deer to thrive in a place they hadn't thrived before um the issue of what is like you know mountain summer recreation have on wildlife uh you know no one can fool themselves anymore into thinking that there's anything in the lower 48 that like is just like isolated right you know just at a cursory glance, like, of course, like humans have impacted everything, but just in these little detailed ways, uh, we are in a position where we just have to own up to the fact that we impact virtually all aspects of the wildlife world um, and need to, in some ways, like measure what that impact is and in times take like what are going to be like unpopular decisions around how to control it. Like with the shed hunting issue. I mean, it's all, it's like people love to be outdoors. They love to be around wildlife. They want to participate in, in, you know, the world of wildlife. But my God, does it come at a cost, man? Well, and, and I mean, you can't, and you can't tell people hands off because then you, you, you don't want to encourage apathy. Right. Like, I mean, it's almost worse if no one cared. I mean, the Forest Service and, and our organization and, and all the state game and fish, I mean, you see it all the time. Uh, get out in nature, get your kids outside. They learn much better if they're in nature. So we're trying to get the people out, but we have to understand that as we do that, there's an impact and we have to give them the tools on how to deal with those impacts. And, and a big thing you hear, you hear it all the time at public meetings, that those deer don't care. They stay in my yard every day. They don't care if I'm there. They yeah. don't care if my dog comes. And, and we've told people, if the animal changes its behavior, you're too close, you've done something wrong, back up. What we haven't told them is that whole physiological part of it that just because the deer's standing there, if he's standing there looking at you, he's gone from maybe a green state of alertment to a yellow state. He's ready to flee. He's not eating, so he's not getting calories. And if he has to flee, then that's an impact on him. But we, we haven't done a good job of saying what those physiological impacts are. The, the fact of a deer and elk standing up from laying down to standing up is a 25% increase in calorie output. So if you think about it, every time you walk by them, if all they do is stand up, you increase their calorie output for that period to 25%. It doesn't take long if they get stood up 10 or 12 times a day that you've really put a drain on their calories. And, and that's, that's our fault. We haven't done a good job putting that out and getting people to understand that. We understand it ourselves. If you walk by a guy's house that has a giant Doberman pincher that charges that gate, even though you know he can't get through that gate, your heart rate goes up, the hair on the back of your neck stands up, your respiration goes up, and it's like you know that animal can't get to you. But you went through that physiological yep. reflex. Mm -hmm. Nothing you can do about it. The, you know, the, 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 the animal in my yard, I feel that like... That's something that you. I spend a lot of energy trying, or a lot of time trying to counter. Is people that have this idea, like, well, how could development be bad for wildlife? Because I have a deer, I have a turkey, I have an elk that comes into my yard, and it's you need to like when people have that mentality, you really need to try to invite them to view a much bigger picture. That the fact that there's, you know, a deer hanging out in your yard doesn't mean that the answer to more deer would be clearly to build more yards. 
Right. Right. There's kind of like you have to, if, if you're going to think that way or look at it that way, you have to go a little bit deeper into some long term trends and thinking about what that deer's whole life cycle is and how it uses the landscape throughout the year. Um, but I think that it almost like does like when people get comfortable with that idea, it almost does a disservice to wildlife management, you know? Yeah. Like, and like there must be tons of them. There's one in my yard. It, and I mean, you have to go back and say, well, before your house, there was 20 there. Yeah. <laughs> now there's one and the other 19 couldn't stand to be next to your house anymore. So they left or they died. Yeah. It, I mean, that's the question we get all the time when we talk about the reduction in elk numbers. Well, where did they go? They didn't go anywhere. We don't see the herds next door jumping up in population numbers. These animals are dead. They're gone. Mm-hmm. They didn't, there isn't a place, there isn't Shangri-La over the next ridge for them to live at. I mean, every place that has elk, their elk are there and they're trying to use it. If you move other elk in on them, you just double stressed them. Yeah. And, and it's the same with, you know, yeah, there's deer in my yard. You know, if, if you go and you followed those deer, it's like, well, they probably don't live as long as a deer in the wild because they get hit by cars. They're more stressed. So they're more susceptible to disease. Um, they're probably not eating foods that are the best for them because somebody's probably feeding them Cheetos or something. Yeah. So you have all of these things that build up. And there was actually some stuff done in Chicago on raccoons, of all things. And raccoons were becoming obese. They were getting uh, diabetes. Their teeth were rotting. Because they're eating so much human food. They weren't getting their normal diet. They're becoming like us. They're becoming just <laughs> yeah. like us. They were eating human food. They became a human. If they could sit home on the couch with a remote and a bag of Cheetos, they were pretty happy. <laughs> so, All right. You guys got any, any more? Man, I, I, I'm good. Yeah. I, I got to follow up. Go ahead. Um, I killed a cow this year. That, I, I don't know what, what the problem was, but clean kill she ended up being chewy i hadn't had a chewy elk in a while right but like every single cut is just like even the tenderloin is just like a little too al dente right so i figure you kill a lot of elk you've seen a lot of elk you've eaten a lot of elk you know that there's elk out there like you said without teeth in their head they're, they're 20 plus year old cows do you have any thoughts on what sometimes produces chewy elk well yeah i mean they're just thoughts they're, they're sure. not, not yeah. nothing based yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in fact, but, but on um, 30 some years of, of experience of hunt, yeah. hunting and eating elk. I mean, the big thing is what happened to that elk the hour before you killed it. Did it come from the ridge side on the other side and run all the way? Right. Was it hyped up that it was all excited? Um, you see it a lot with antelope that, you know, people will go out and they shoot an antelope that came. It's like, yeah, I was standing out there in the sagebrush. This antelope came busting over the ridge right to me and I shot it. Man, it was terrible. Well, maybe that antelope been running for 30 minutes. So all the adrenaline's yeah. pumped in its body. It's got all the lactic acid. It's got all this stuff going on. So, so I think that's a, a big factor in it. You don't know. I mean, the, the elk could look like, hey, there's a good layer of fat on it. It looks healthy. The teeth look good. But that doesn't mean at some point in the time that that elk wasn't suffering some other stress or some other problems. Um, it, interesting. I don't see a lot of ticks on our animals here, but... When we were trapping elk every day, it was amazing. Um, when we started in 84 and, and ended in the mid-90s, um, during that 10 or 12-year period, we started seeing more and more ticks on elk in the winter than we'd ever seen before, enough that we were writing it down on our data sheets, this elk is full of ticks. Hmm. So you don't know if, if in the summer they're impacted by ticks. Um, 
you know, just what was going on with them. So something it, was stressing them out. Something's usually stressing them out. I mean, when you you see it, especially in hogs, that if you get a hog before slaughter that's too hot or it's stressed on that white meat, you'll see red dots through it, and that's a sign that that animal was stressed before it was killed, hmm. and and that really affects the quality of the meat. Yeah, I didn't feel like the last time I had a chewy animal, it was a it was a mule deer buck. And uh, I didn't put, didn't the first shot miss completely. It ran. I shot. Uh, there was some more shooting that went on. And 15 <laughs> minutes later, the animal was dead. It didn't die easily. And um, yeah, it was a tough, tough eating animal. Yeah. And I just feel like, yeah, all those chemicals surging through. Yeah, that li- in livestock slaughter, they go through, there's a lot of steps in the process to alleviate stress during livestock slaughter. Right. For, for from a meat, I mean, not just from a humane perspective, from a meat quality perspective, to alleviate stress. Yeah. So as but far to, as the, as far as age being a, a factor, I think it's a factor, man. You do, yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's a factor, but it, it's not a guaranteed factor that a toothless one's going to be tough. Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, I think we've all shot an animal that was we thought was a yearling, two year old, maybe, and it's like it just didn't taste as good. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean. Uh, I've shot some bighorn sheep that were eight and ten years old. They tasted great. They You've drawn more than one bighorn sheep tag. I've drawn two. Is that because you work for the state? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really? no, that, you, you drew it. two bighorn tags in your lifetime. Yeah. Wow. Well, one was an any sheep. One was a ram tag. You, you got to so, understand, he's in a position where he's all mad because he didn't draw any good tags. I just suffered year. through a horrible <laughs> tag draw season. Well, I didn't draw my moose tag, so I'm right there with you. Okay. So, I feel like I've been isolated out and picked on this year by the permit draw systems. So you cool? You shot a tough old cow? Yeah. Still eating her. Was it old? I didn't go and have her aged. Well, but what'd the teeth look like? I mean, they look good or they look Oh, yeah. They look good. I think you got to know what you're doing to really look at those teeth, man. Well, but I mean, are they all there? Are they uniform? She had all her teeth. Yeah. Um, Have you... She's already had time to freeze her age, and that hasn't helped? No. Uh, you know, might just be that you're just going to have to just grind it. Grind it up. Oh, no, definitely. And, and listen, like, yeah. Is the flavor let, good? Yeah, it's it's fine. And when you cook a roast the proper way, it's eating fine, but you just like, gosh, just a little yeah. too. Just got to sharpen more. your knife more and go a little <laughs> thinner, man. Yeah, totally. You got a slicer? Uh, no. But, uh, yeah, we're out of burgers, so it's, like, perfect, you know. I'll be taking a bunch of roasts out and just turning it into burger. Because the flavor's good, and you grind yeah, it, it's, it's like, fine. who really cares? Right. Or cook it and, and just slice it thin, thin. Mm-hmm. But you know what I do have a little bit in my freezer of that, like, I had never experienced, and I you hear stories about it, and it's where all this stuff perpetuates from are these mule deer, right? That the sagey, gamey, oh, ga, ga, ga. Yeah, well, listen, well, I heard the whole story. It was like one guy shot it. It went over the ridge. He decided not to even follow up. So the, his buddy went over there feeling bad, killed it. The guy didn't brought it to the guy. He didn't want it. It sat out in the sun for a day. Eventually, my neighbor ends up with it. He's like, I'll take it. So I helped him. It didn't smell bad or anything when we butchered it, um, but taking these packages of ground meat out, like when you open the package of ground meat, you just like, you can smell it right then and there. Yeah. You cook it, it's bad. So like taking care, stress, stressing it, taking care of it, like it, it can definitely happen. 
I've told the story a hundred times. I don't know if I've told it on this digital radio program, but about my buck that fell into a sinkhole. Yeah, right? you told that one. Worst buck I ever ate because it was I couldn't recover it quickly. Down in a sinkhole. Well, my Colorado moose is eating great. Oh yeah, rub it in. <laughs> it was a cow, not a bull. That's yeah. That's really the thing I get so sick of is that big mule deer bucks don't taste good. When you get that like a nice big mule deer buck and he's got a bunch of fat on his rump. Yep. Listen, my wife who doesn't care at all about deer antlers doesn't even get it. She can't tell a big one from a little one when they're sitting right in front of her. She's like, it just looks like the same like all the other ones. Doesn't care. She likes that meat, the big old mule deer buck meat. Only going by this. She, like when I make dinner, okay. When I make dinner, if that's what it is, she's like, that is so good. What is that? Loves it. She wouldn't like Yon- the Bucks Yana shoots. She doesn't like uh, <laughs> she, like white like whitetail meat. She feels it's a little too mild, a little too bland. You know, I shot Moose a- meat, she doesn't really. Every time I cook moose, I don't even tell her what it is, but she'll eat it. And she'll be like, what is that? And I'll be like, moose. She's like, ah, you know, it's just something about it. Yeah, I shot a yearling cow last December, and... It was surprising how mild it was. Like, cause you get used to eating stuff, you know, you're shooting older elk or bucks or whatever. You get used to that just flavor. And that thing was like vealish, you know, it was so, and even the meat was lighter than you'd expect yeah. to see. And, and it, it was mild. Uh, like, I, you, you said it before, it's like almost to the point where it, it's not that it tastes bad. It's just, so mild, there's almost nothing. Yeah, there. it gets to the point of being a little bland. Yeah, yeah, pound for pound. I don't, I don't like. I wouldn't trade it because I like to eat the animals that I shot, or next best thing is the animals that my buddy shot when I was with them, kind of thing. Just yeah, mentally. So I wouldn't like literally do these trades, but you know, pound for pound, I would swap out like three, four year old mule deer meat. I, I would like trade elk to get that yeah. back. Yeah. I like it. You got preferences? Antelope. Really? That's my wife's favorite is antelope. That's my favorite. So you like like a you like that flavor. Well, as long as you treat it right. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I think mean, that we put we put in the freezer what was it a mule yeah, mule deer? Ah, it's so hard to tell because we come home from, you know, working and with you know, we're always divvying up meat, but I had two antelope in the freezer and it's by far been the favorite this year for mm-hmm. everybody. Yeah. And I haven't noticed a difference in in bigger bucks and does and that at all. But you know, the, I mean, within fifteen minutes of hitting the ground, that sucker's in a cooler. Right. Yeah, I got you. So, did you draw an antelope tag yesterday? I did not. So you just got to find out like everybody else. I got to fight it just like everybody else. <laughs> just like I'm, Steve. I'm fighting like on the moose. I've been fighting since there's been a moose season in Colorado for it. And there's some people in the valley that have drawn their bull tag and now their cow tags. So when they're doing the draw, do they call up? Like, do your colleagues call up and be like, uh, Bill, great news. No. You just got to check your email. Just got to check your email. Just like a regular old guy. Just that's, like that's, Steve Rinella. That's horrible, man. <laughs> yeah, no, there's no there's no benefit one way at all. It looked pretty you. bad. It would look pretty bad if you did it. <laughs> that's another conspiracy theory. Oh, uh, and I've heard that one plenty. Oh, yeah. Yep. All right, anyone else? Any last things? Officer Andre, you have any um, final things you didn't get to say? Be safe out there. Be safe out there. Self-report. Self-report. 
When you make everybody's going to make a mistake, just turn, do the right thing, turn yourself in. I think everybody would be happy with the outcome when you do that. Try to hide it. You aren't going to be happy with the outcome. And if you have to say if. If you have to say if, probably shouldn't do it. All right. Thank you very much for joining us. All right. Thank you. Hey, if you follow wildlife news at all, you're probably aware that the island of Maui has an incredible abundance of Axis deer, so much so that they're causing ecological damage. Well, Maui Nui venison is thinning out some of those Axis deer herds and delivering venison sticks and fresh cuts to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. The Sport Dog promise to consumers is simple. Gear the way you'd design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field, ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. I've used that Sport Dog collar in different temperatures. It just doesn't stop working. Get 20% off your first purchase using code MEATEATER. So go to www.sportdog.com slash meateater to learn more.